0: Happy Friday, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T., and welcome back. Here's your weekly podcast. You guys have been doing good this last week. Lots been going on. Had an opportunity to go up to the Utah VW Classic last week. Got to meet some listeners. Appreciate everybody who came by the booth and supported the podcast by buying a T-shirt. We will be definitely at some next shows coming up, so if you want to get yourself some cool new merch, support the podcast at the same time, you can do that. Absolutely. So a couple things I wanted to do right now is talk about the Vintage Volkswagen Club of America. The Vintage Volkswagen Club of America has been around since 1976. They've got over 35 Chapters and 40,000 members. Their website gets about 160,000 views per month, and their purpose is to grow and promote the VW hobby. To join is free. Uh, by your free membership, you will get access to the current edition of the Vintage Voice newsletter and access to all past editions of the Vintage Voice newsletter. Also, they have an opportunity to become a pro membership. Pro membership is $25 a year. And for that basic membership, you get access to you get the Vintage Voice newsletter online, but you could also get six copies mailed to you per year, 10% off all items in the Regalia Shop, and up to 25% off discounts at Haggerty Insurance, Hot VWs, CarTech Auto Books and Manuals, and more to come. So check them out at VVWCA.com. VVWCA.com, the Vintage Volkswagen Club of America. You should be a member. Why? Because I am. All right, so on today's podcast, I had a funny situation. So I put my Puma up for sale, and out of nowhere, this guy shows up to buy my Puma, this guy, Joe Moore. You may know Joe Moore because Joel Moore from Moore Performance, well, he has the quick and dirty drag bug, and the quick and dirty drag bug is the one that goes to VW drag days and rips wheelies up and down the eighth mile, and it's pretty legit. So it was interesting that he just came up to to visit me. I said, well, you're here. Well, he didn't come up to visit me. He came up here to buy my Puma. So we exchanged messages back and forth. And I said, oh, by the way, I do a podcast. Why don't you, since you're here, Let's just do a podcast. So, got some time to sit down with Joel Moore. Been wanting to meet and chat with the guy for a little bit. So, perfect opportunity an in studio interview. So, you guys that are the audio files, man, you'll enjoy this one because the audio quality on it's fantastic. So, without any further ado, guys, let's get into this one. Joel Moore, more performance. Don't forget, go to Let'sTalkDubs.com/blog for our blog page for the companion to follow along with this podcast. A
1: Volkswagen
0: All right. Okay, everybody. So on today's episode, I've got a special guest. I was selling a car and uh, an individual hits me up on Facebook. And so I look at this guy and I've seen the name before and I'm familiar with his car and all this stuff. And so I thought, oh, you know what, when this guy gets here, I'm going to trap him and we're going to do a podcast. So I'm sure you guys are plenty familiar with my next guest. He's been in the VW scene for over 30 years. He's been in the VW scene, been in the VW scene 40 years. He's worked at several places. He's at his own place. And our guest today is, is going to be Joel Moore with Moore Performance. He's out of Hesperia, California. Um, they, you'll, you'll know him mostly from uh, Quick and Dirty, as his drag car. And he was uh, influential in the uh, Cadron racing series and a lot of those things. And so he came up here to take a look at a Puma that I got because if everybody knows, he has a Puma addiction as well or a Puma problem. So uh, today we're going to go ahead and welcome Joel to the podcast. Joel, welcome.
1: How's it going, guys?
0: hey so uh I, I appreciate having you on here because I've've I've known you from afar from a little bit because you've been doing things in the VW scene for quite a while and I and and luckily that we have you here today I'd like to be able to get you on and kind of talk about you know more performance what you're all about mm-hmm. where that came from and and usually all of this starts with your VW story so sure what is your VW story and how did you get into Volkswagens
1: well uh, I was very young, and my dad had an oval window ragtop for a daily commuter. And he actually chopped the fenders a little bit and uh, trimmed the front a little bit so he could put uh, his wife and six kids in this thing and go out off roading in Corona Hills and Riverside and whatnot for exploring. And uh, I grew up on dirt bikes, and uh, my dad had dune buggies after he got rid of the oval and grew up just going out to the desert a lot. And so when it came time for my first car, uh, being a dirt bike guy, I want something that I could take off road and take to school too. So I ended up getting a Baja. Well, being a 17, 18 year old kid, uh, with adrenaline rushes on a minutely basis, uh, I was out jumping it, donuts, doing all kinds of stupid stuff. And, uh, I had a very medial job at a, uh, a rental yard and hooking up trailers and whatnot on weekends. So if I broke my car, I had to fix it. Yeah. Uh, I ended up working uh, in a machine shop after that, and then went to uh, a wrecking yard called JJ's Foreign in Placentia, I'm working there as an R and R guy. And uh, I had to keep going back to uh, the same transmission shop, VW transmission shop, to uh, get parts for my Baja because I was breaking axles and stuff like that. So what, what year was the Baja? 68 uh nothing special and uh so I kept going back to uh, a little place called Mr. Trans in uh Anaheim and uh, a guy named Andy Gurley owned it and uh I kept going back over there to get transmission parts because I could do the diff out you know on my bod to repair it and he finally asked me how much I could do and I said well by that time I had rebuilt my dad's buggy motor and done my motor and the transmission out and minor electrical, and he hired me on the spot as an R and R kid. And uh, business was really good, uh, and I got into building motors through him and his shop, and uh, worked for him for a while. And then, long story short, again his uh, business started to wane a little bit, and he had a brother that had a shop mm-hmm. in Anaheim, right across from Anaheim. I'm sorry, from uh, Disneyland called R and N VW, and he needed help. So, I went over to work at r n n for a little while, and uh personality clashes i left there and looking for another job i ended up
0: at geneberg enterprises uh, uh this was what what year is this it's right around eighty eighty one uh all right so nineteen eighty one now you're working over at geneberg enterprises so so you go from the r n a transmission shop r n n yeah r R&N, mm-hmm. and then you move over to geneberg
1: yeah uh went in there with a friend of mine needed some parts and uh he was visiting from Reno. He had a really nice gear with the, what he called his D-Strucker, 1702, 64 mm-hmm. by 92 with 48s on, homemade heads, made about 160, and used to terrorize Orange County and that thing. And he had some parts for his car, we went over to uh, Berg's, and uh, they had a sign on the wall that said, uh, help wanted, must be non-smoker. So I filled out an app, and he called me the next day and uh, got in there. And I was a kind of a machinist junkie when I was in school, so kind of fit right in, and me, Doug, and Clyde, and, and Gary kind of became fast friends and uh, worked there for almost a couple of years, and uh, uh, long story short again, uh, kind of made Gene mad, <laughs> uh, but I left there and actually got out of the VW industry because uh, I uh, saw that, this things would look like they were slowing down. People were parking their cars.
0: So let me ask you a question real quick. So let me so when <clears> you go over there to Gene to get some parts for your buddy, Geneberg at this time is a known VW performance shop. Correct. So you're so so to to start working there, was it kind of a thing like, oh man, I got a job over here. This has got to be the like the place to work.
1: Uh actually a little bit of instant celebrity status. Uh I was actually hanging out with a friend of mine that had A pretty nice bug. And uh, he got accepted by uh, DKK. Mm -hmm. So I was going to DKK meetings uh, regularly with him. And at that point, I had a street bug, uh, 66. And... uh, it wasn't one color so they wouldn't invite me into the to be a member but uh, still you know talked to a lot of the dkk guys uh, and dkk so. was
0: one of the early Southern California clubs that was around during yeah. the time of D, uh, DKP, dkp and all that
1: actually uh, the the joke was a dkk was dkp light you didn't oh, have really? didn't have to have the big motor but just about everything else and uh, um, hung with those guys for a while but like I said I, I got out of the VW scene actually completely Uh and, uh, was a machinist for 17 years and moved to the high desert, uh, in 84 because of a job opportunity. And I had sold everything Volkswagen that I owned when I moved to the desert.
0: This is after leaving Jean Berg.
1: Yeah. After leaving Jean Berg, I actually worked at a couple of machine shops after that, before I moved to the, to the high desert in 84, late 84, I was a machine shop foreman at a place in Santa Ana. But, uh. You know, machining was really my first love, a better career than the VW industry seemed to be at the time. And uh, so I did that for quite a while. Well, after 17 years of being a machinist, uh, I was concurrently getting back into VWs and actually started racing off-road in Class 9 and uh, started racing Class 9 about 89. And uh, it took me a while to get good at it, but I ended up with a couple of championships at MDR Doing all my own motors, all my own, my, my own transmissions, my own shocks, my own prep work. Uh, uh, got a good chassis from Suspensions Unlimited that really uh, put us on top of the pack for about two and a half years. We were uh, really doing well.
0: Um, the this shop. Is, this is 89, you're saying? 1989, 90?
1: 89 when I started uh, racing off road. And uh, about. Well, I started the shop actually in 97 i uh got tired of getting laid off by machine shops so i went to an interview at a machine shop honestly and uh the guy said you're perfect for the job i said okay when do i start he goes well i just lost the contract this morning on the phone he goes as soon as i have work i'll give you a call so the building next door to him was empty and at the time like i said i was racing off-road and i'd been you know collecting unemployment and working on VWs out of my garage to subsidize my income and uh, i had some off-road um class nine guys that I was doing work for and talked to my wife. We had some savings and I said, well, you know, if I rent this shop, all I got to do is make, it was 800 square feet at 25 cents a foot. So I had to make 200 bucks a month just to, just to make the rent. Well, a year and a half later, the machine shop had moved out. I took over his shop. So now we had two shops side by side. A year and a half after that, uh, I had four full-time employees um, about nine years at that location. And we doubled the size of the shop again. Uh, And I got a little bit of uh, feedback from my customers that weren't happy about uh, wanting if I was going to work on their cars and we had some comebacks and things like that. So as uh, time went on, I had let uh, two guys filter away and two guys that I fired. And start working basically by myself.
0: With a, and, and that's kind of the process with a shop. Like it starts out with like, if I only had another good hand here, I could get some more work. Then yeah. I stay on top of the workload and then yeah. you get another good hand. Then you bring in more work. And it's like this cyclical yeah. thing to where now yeah. you end up like you're, you're not working on cars. You're just managing people and listening to excuses. Exactly. And all kinds of nonsense all it, day long. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And uh, as anybody that's been in this industry for any like the time, as you gain experience in this industry, it's a constant mode of training your employees. Oh, so absolutely. I was spending more time, like you said, training and trying to keep track of what was going in and out of the doors. And uh, it just got to be uh, more headache than it was worth. And, uh, and a lot like of times said,
0: you end up training your competition.
1: I did that a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that happened a couple of times. But uh, for the most part.
0: Um, so uh, more, more performance kind of goes through this this inception where you start off mostly supporting like the off-road guys because you're in the yes. high desert, a lot of off-road racers yep. there uh-huh. and you kind of go up that swing. Uh-huh. And then you start now that you're diversified, you get enough guys, you're, you're always looking to take on more stuff. So you kind of start doing some street stuff as well. Yeah. I never really, uh, cornered
1: myself with the off-road thing, but it was actually, uh, you know, it was part of my world at that time. And, uh, I was still doing sand buggy motors mm-hmm. and, uh, um, you know, there's an occasional streetcar, especially in the high desert. And one, one time I was about, uh, in business for three or four years and I thought, well, I own a VW shop. I ought to drive a Volkswagen bug. You know, I had a, a truck that I used every day. So, um, I ended up finding this little beetle. It's another long story. I traded four Bilstein shocks for a 64 European body that was no rust, never hit, nice, no pan, So I had a pan from another uh, Baja that I bought, and I put the two together and uh, started uh, playing around with it and uh, built a little 1904, uh, 74, 90 and a half, and some Cadrons on it, some 041s. I think I put a uh, VZ25 in it and uh, got it done one night and was out in front of the shop and thought, well, let's see if this thing rips. And it laid about 60 feet of rubber in first, about 40 in second, and nice. just on 165 radials. But um, I uh, had a customer come in and uh, he had me do a transmission for a fiberglass buggy. And he goes, Well, I'm ready for a motor. I said, Well, what do you want? He goes, Well, I used to race Altereds back in the 60s. I want something with a little bit of pep. And so I threw him the keys to a car we affectionately called Tie Dye. And uh, it's seven shades of primer. That's why. Yeah. Uh, and I said, take that around the block. And so he came back, and he goes, that thing hauls hands. I go, oh, come on. He goes, you drive Corvettes and stuff like that. And he goes, that's probably as fast as the last Corvette I ever had. It was a mid-'80s, you know, run 15s in the quarter. I right. Go, I don't know. He goes, let's take it to the track. So LACR was still open at the time, and we took it out there. And he was running low 16s. By the time we got done with the night, he was running mid-15s. And he kind of got me hooked on drag racing. And uh I had drag raced actually back at Buggin in uh 70 79 or 80. I think it was uh buggin 28 or 29. I took my street bug out there and yeah and uh drag raced a little bit. But that's actually one reason I got into off-road because I wanted more miles for my money.
0: <laughs> right. no, no, absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and that and coming off dirt bikes, you know, so the dirt was uh was more home to me. But um fast forward back again, uh I built uh, tie dye, and then I built another drag car. I ended up actually uh, getting sold to Lloyd Mosier for his son. And uh, I was wanting to go to Pugarama, and I didn't have a car. I had my motor and uh, my transmission. And uh, I told my buddies, "I go go find a bug. Just look around. If you hear something, let me know." And a guy called me, a friend of mine, drove home that day and said, "There's one sitting out in front of a, a house. It's got for sale sign at nine hundred bucks." I said, "Does it drive?" He goes, yeah, it's got two sets of wheels. Okay. Um, if you can drive to the shop, I'll give you 900 bucks. Go get it for me. So he brought it back to the shop and uh, actually had a set of cow parts in the car. Really? Yep. Yeah. And a set of center lines on the car. Oh, wow. Lady gotten upset with her son who got hooked on drugs and told him to get out. And she sold all of his stuff to pay his bills and his, uh, his uh, arrest fees. Wow. So <laughs> anyway. That car got
0: uh, put together and is now known as Quick and Dirty. So that's the Quick and Dirty car. That is the Quick and Dirty car. It came out of somebody's front yard. So now talk to me mm-hmm. about – so people see Quick and Dirty on there. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the concept of where Quick and Dirty came from and, and, and how this whole thing comes together.
1: Well, actually, it's, uh, it's a story that uh, is really very, almost self-explanatory. But uh, I'd had uh, tie-dye, and I had the other drag bug, and I was going to events regularly. And, uh, it was one of the first times I wanted to go to, uh, ram up in Sacramento and, uh, just got this thing together and I, I had like two weeks to do it. And the engineer that I built the motor for that, uh, for the glass buggy, uh, was helping me put the car together. And he goes, How do you want to do this? How do you want to do that? I go, You know, Jim, whatever's quick under you, just, just make it work. You know, we just got to get the car together so we can go. So we got the car going and actually went and tested at, uh, LACR a couple days before we left and, Took it up to Sacramento and it still had a Cadron 1904
0: in it. And uh, so you took the car, hold on, you took the car drag racing with CADs on it with Cadrons.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was just uh, a little light bug. I bought a one piece glass front end at Pomona swapped me for 50 bucks. Right. And uh, uh, put the whole thing together, like I said, just kind of willy nilly. And so we got up to Sacramento and everybody's going, where'd this come from? Joel, you had that, you had that. I go, well, we just kind of threw it together, you know, just uh, me and a buddy would put together. And we just kind of did it, you know, quick and dirty. And my wife looks at me and says, well, you got to call it that. So I handed her shoe polish i said you do me the honor of writing it on the side so she wrote quick and dirty on the side and my dad who <laughs> was already probably three sheets to the wind wrote more performance on the bottom and if you could see the original before there was a sticker if you see the older pictures you can see that he runs out of room and starts cramming the letters right, towards right. the end but wasn't professionally, anyway. <laughs> wasn't professionally stenciled <laughs> no out. but that actually you know it kind of adds the enigma that uh, the whole thing just kind of happened by accident and uh the whole wheelie thing is a whole nother
0: story. That was just, and when I had the 1904, it was just running brackets. Uh, so you were just going for the 1904, and you thought, mm-hmm. you know what? It, it, the the philosophy, because we're going to get into the Cadron thing in a minute. Mm-hmm. But you had the Cads on there because they're just easy to tune, set it and forget it type thing. Once you get them dialed in, they're pretty. They're not as finicky as like a four barrel, you know, like like dual two barrel carbs. Right. And and you could be consistent bracket racing, just like. Well, it uh, the
1: real the real thing all came from when I had my street bug, I worked at that uh, J&J's Foreign Auto, and my first high-performance part I purchased was a pair of Cadrons over the counter before I started working there for $129.95, and I put those on my 16 dual part, which was an all-stock junkyard motor. I have a 73 that was wrecked, and uh, put an 09 in it, and uh, that was what I terrorized Whittier Boulevard with as much as I could. Uh, so I was really familiar with the Cadrons, and uh, they're very basic. There's like 20 parts on the whole carburetor. You know, I used to do dirt bike carburetors and stuff like that, and it just seemed simple, and I didn't have the money for Weber's. That's all sure. it really was to it. So I kind of stuck to that motif, and when I put the car together, or tie-dye, when I put tie-dye together to uh, run around the streets uh, up there, uh, I just kind of kept on working with them, you know, and I was a machinist, so I bore out the the inventories and you know, make other modifications to them, see what would work better. And uh, about 1999, a couple years after I started the dyno, I started the uh, shop uh, closer to 2000. uh, I bought my own Stuska dyno and that's what really started things uh, evolving. But the Cadrons were just uh, something I had. And like I said, at the time I couldn't afford Weber's. I was a new business and I was deep into off-road at that time. You got to remember that's where my money was going was off-road. So the drag racing thing was – totally a second hobby.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the off-road guys, they all run single carbs because simplicity, right? They'll run like a dual or a, like a, like a single 40 or there's not a lot of guys running dual carbs off-road. Is there? Well, actually, no, it depends on the class spec. I was in class right. nine, which requires a 30 pick one. Solex. Oh, so yeah, it's
1: single carb all the way. Right. So we had to run that. And even in one, two 1600, 5, 16, class 11, you all have to run the single Solex. Um, in those days, most of the guys that were running class 10 or class 12 uh some had you know
0: single 44s on their engine that was uh that was allowed but it was mostly by class spec yeah and so you're running the you're running the quick and dirty car and you're just your first race is, is bug ram up in sacramento uh yeah and then we named it and
1: then i started running some other races with it and uh drag days when it had just started and uh the, uh, the whole wheelie thing came about because uh, I went to, uh, I had my dyno, it was about 2001, 2002, and my 1904, we had up on the dyno, we were trying to make more power with it and uh, run a little quicker and uh, the car was already kind of established uh, just as a bracket car and uh, had the motor up on the dyno and uh, started knocking. And we got a week before the race uh, up in Sacramento and uh, I said, well... I pull it out, and the flywheel would come loose. And
0: another lesson learned, don't use stock land nuts. So, stock land on a, on a, on a four-dial crank or eight-dial? It was
1: an eight-dial crank, but it was a stock land nut. And I was uh, starting to get the motor. 1904, we did kind of what we call drag trim, it's, I guess, you know, no shroud or anything. And we started getting up towards 160 or so. And it was the the 74 crank I bought out of a guy's trunk for 50 bucks and had it ground. Right. And the
0: flywheel was one that I dialed myself. So it wasn't really a good match. It was a so I'm really assuming that the, the, so. the, the, the crankshaft, when you pulled it out of his trunk, it, there wasn't a Magna Flux inside his trunk. So oh, no. just, it was just a straight gamble. No, actually,
1: well, if, if, if you know crankshafts, you did the very old well. school test where you absolutely where you
0: put on a spring and you
1: hit it. I, I knocked it on the ground. It rung like a bell. I said, It's not cracked. I'll, I'll take it. And I had it ground by a, a local guy. So put that together. But anyway, the flywheel had come loose and uh, I wanted to go to the race and I had a uh, an 82 stroker sitting there actually for a customer and he wasn't in, uh, in a hurry for his job i said well i told a friend of mine to go take this over to the balancer and have it balanced so it was the engineer guy again and mm-hmm. he got halfway there he goes well why don't you just use my motor i go well you sure he goes well we got my transmission out because you're doing my transmission the motor's just sitting on the ground uh, he goes just promise me one thing I go, what's that and he goes leave the fan belt on okay i can do that he had a 2275 with 44s. So popped it in the car, didn't even test, uh, just took it down the street. It runs, put it on the trailer, and went up to uh, bug around with it. And uh, got out there on Saturday. I had no idea what this car was going to do. So got up to the line. I didn't have any revlimers in it at the time. It was literally just pedaling it. And got up to the line and pulled the tack up to about 4,000, let the clutch out. when The light went green, and, you know, Pulled the front end up and went about 30 feet, dropped it back down and made my pass. I said, well, I can get better 60-foot if I, you know, lean on a little bit harder. So I'll go to 5,000. So I pedaled up to 5,000 at the line. It pulled the front end up. And at the end of the first gear, it dropped the front end down. And I grabbed second and made my pass. and Picked up three tenths. You know, sure, that's pretty good. What's going to happen if I go to six? You know? So I pulled up the line and I was just round robbing. There was almost nobody in line. So I, was just, I had the fan belt on. I was just round robbing uh, the, the lines. And I pulled back up the line and pulled up the six and the front end. Light went green. Front end came up and the shift light came on. So I'm a good driver. I shift when my shift lights You're on speed shift the thing, speed shift it. It was still in the air and, uh, it dropped front end about halfway through second gear. <laughs> I got back to my pit and you thought a rock star had walked onto the premises because everybody came running over to my pit going, Oh my God, that was so cool. Can you do it again? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, I don't, I don't know. You know, we, it's too late tonight. We couldn't make any more passes. So the next day comes on Sunday morning and uh, we get practice cause I was just running a pro eliminator and uh go out to make another pass and uh, pull into the lanes and word had gotten around in the bug around the camp about what had happened the night before so i pulled up to the lanes and as soon as i pulled on the water box about six photographers ran to my lane like there was nobody even on the other <laughs> side of the track and so i i did the same thing i pulled it up to about six grand and it started dragging the stinger i hit second gear and dropped the front end and i got back to my pit and a bunch of people ran over and I was signing an autographs and, <laughs> and it was like I had no idea what what I right. just created so and they wanna know can you do it again? Well, uh, believe it or not we did that every pass
0: and went to the final actually that, that race. Yeah, I was pretty impressed. I, w- I watched a video of you on YouTube mm-hmm. uh, or on Facebook it was of you uh-huh. pulling a wheelie and then I saw it and it was like eh, I'm like he just shifted gears, <laughs> wheels up. I'm like that's some skill right there to keep that thing up you know.
1: Well, I I gotta say, people ask me a lot of time. You know, cut a hole in the floor. How do you see? And and honestly, for my off road racing days, I drive. Excuse my French. Drive with my ass. Right. You know, the the bucket fits tight. I can feel the car going left or right. You know, the back tells me how high it is and stuff like that. So I, I'm literally just driving by the seat of my pants, literally. Um, and over
0: time and over experience, you know, you, you kind of get used to it. Uh, yeah, because you're, really, you're, you're looking at nothing but sky. When you're sitting in that seat, you're just looking oh, yeah. at green sky, or blue sky. Blue and, sky, yeah. And yeah. you're just kind of feeling the car twitch one way or the other. So
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, luckily, though, I've only hit the wall uh, twice in 15 years, uh, both at Irwindale, which is a narrow track anyway. Yeah. Uh, but it was literally just because it came up on the ass uh, so violently because I set the limit or too high for the day and the track, and it actually teetered up on the, the stinger all four off the ground.
0: And so, what what mm-hmm. was that car running when you went to Bugarama? So the 1904, you're running how fast?
1: Uh, we had low 14s, high 13s, uh, and then uh, the 2275.
0: I ran 1270s, 1280s. So that's a that's a pretty good jump. I mean, just from swapping the motor. I mean, yeah, obviously, it's a big motor, but I mean, yeah, for, from being one car to the next and just switching the motor out. That's a pretty that's a pretty good clip to get yeah. moving.
1: And actually, one of the things I I kind of left out was that uh, my friend made me uh, promise to keep the famult on, but I thought, well, people know me for cadrons. So I took his Weber's off and put my cadrons on when I went to Sacramento. Oh, get and, out of here. Did, yeah.
0: <laughs> so you she so, essentially choked down the motor a little bit yeah, as far as yeah. as far as its respiratory system yeah. by putting the, the cads on. So yeah. Now I want to talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit because a lot of people they love they, they love them dual Weber's, you know, you got the debate sure, Weber's or Delordos or whatever the mm-hmm. case is. Yeah. But I can tell you right now, I, I had a crew cab that I used to daily drive for work and whatnot, and and that car that I had, I had a 1914 with dual cabs on it, and that sure. car was like, I, I, I'm notoriously lazy with my motors, and once they get yeah. running good, I just leave the deckly really closed. I don't even mess sure. with it. Why not? And, yeah. and it's like, that car, it, it was, it was probably one of the most... Reliable, fun running, night, the little torquey yeah. motors that I had in my crew cab. Sure, but it was like solid. And so, yeah, uh, you know what's what's the secret to getting the cads running right? Like, is there if, if there's a couple things you're looking for on the on the Cadrons, just to make them run right, or somebody's at a swap meet looking them? I mean, is there the couple things that are typically the things that are like don't buy these? But if you got a couple basic things, I mean, you're just checking throttle shafts and throttle shafts are solid, then you can kind of work with it from that point. On I mean, is it is it a good carb to get into for like the starter guy that's out there just trying to do something and get a little more performance?
1: Yeah, actually the what I tell most of my customers is the cadrons are the most bang for your buck. Uh, as far as the idiosyncrasies are concerned, I find very little. Uh, as long as they're clean and the throttle shafts aren't completely wore out, they're actually pretty easy to tune. The biggest misconception that people have uh, and something I have to train everybody that gets a pair of cadrons about is that, there's a flow anomaly that takes place because you have one barrel and two cylinders. Right. So it's not going to idle on all four. Instead of that, nice Weber, burr, you get the da, da 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 It's totally normal. I tried to cure it on my street bug back in the 70s and found out that it's just the way they are. Uh, but as soon as you crack the throttle, all four come on. It does not hurt a thing. In fact, two cylinders aren't firing, so they're staying cooler, if anything. really, Yeah. So uh, the big thing that
0: people have trouble with is trying to balance them when – you're only hitting two instead of four, right? Like, like if someone's obsessing over the over the synchro meter, you got there's a little bit of tolerance there just because of the the vacuum and the pop that you're that you have happening because of the single to two barrel. That they they're just gonna have. I mean, they they can get them pretty accurate, but if you're trying to get the car to run like a sewing machine, it's not, it's just not gonna do that with the dual cod. Cats
1: yeah, on there. yeah, they won't do that. No, it's just like I said, nature of the beast. You get that flow anomaly where one will prioritize through yeah. a manifold.
0: Are are they known for <laughs> flat spots? Or no. are they pr- they're pretty smooth. All no, way they're through? real
1: they're real smooth as long as you've got the right plug, the right coil. You know, make sure you have a hot enough ignition so that when that plug does come on, make sure the plug's not too cold, so it doesn't take a lot of heat to keep it uh, firing. As soon as you crack the throttle, accelerator pump adjustment. Uh, it's just all, a lot of little things, but I, I have very very few problems. You know, getting those. St- Turned in. So. Now you,
0: you became, you said you became known for like running the CAD. So you pulled the 44s off and you put the CADs on there. Yeah. What special modifications did you do to those cadrons to run that, that, that's not available off the shelf Are these things like highly, highly modified, or was it anything that anybody can do with some time and, and determination?
1: Uh, actually the first set that uh, we're on the 2275, the only thing we really did was uh, we pu- punched the venturies out to 37 millimeters.
0: Now, I'm not super familiar with these carbs. Do the venturies come in and out on those carbs? Can you switch them or not really? On, on yeah.
1: The- yeah, they're removable. So uh, it's they're removable. Niceable. Yeah, you can go stock is 28. There was a factory 30, which is kind of rare, millimeter ventury. Uh, and then even AJ and I and Clyde, we've all bored them out. I got to 37 millimeters. Uh, I know Caddyshack has their own sizes. Uh, and then put a bigger main jet in it. You don't even need to really mess with the emulsion tube or anything. Uh, emulsion tube just creates the vacuum signal for the main. And, uh, as long as you've got enough main jet in there, it'll run fine. Uh, the ones that you set the CADRON record with,
0: those are extremely modified. So those are highly modified. Yeah, I, I
1: I've got probably a day's worth
0: of work in those. As far as I actually made a fixture to go in my lathe to bore the bodies out. Now you said. Now you said the Cadron record. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Cadron record. Talk about this, this this Cadron class that came out. And I don't even is the Cadron class still around, or it kind of something that started, it got real popular for a little bit, and then, like with anything else, once somebody just dominates the class, it's like, okay, why you're not going further uh, that's, than that that's kind of the case
1: uh the whole cadron thing came about because uh and quite honestly i don't know who was doing as back in 0102 uh clyde berg and i were buddies and uh i had my cadron motor and he was running another car and uh, somebody we don't know who was putting up 100 bucks for the quickest cadron class or quickest cadron pass uh, and i had my 1904 and I don't remember what the eighth mile numbers were. I think it was around 940s or 950s or something like that. But so I would show up and I would get the $100. Bucks. Uh, that enticed some other people to try and get the $100 right. because it was, you know, 20 bucks to race and you're running brackets anyway. So maybe you can win your class and get the 100 bucks. That's what I tried to do. Well, it uh, kind of caught fire with uh, AJ Sims, uh, Clyde Berg, the Herbert brothers. Uh, there's another guy up in Tatchby. I don't remember his name. And there's four or five of us that uh, just started going bonkers. I mean, I built a 2442. That's another a 20, oh, a 2442 <laughs> uh, yeah, with CADs on it.
0: Yeah. Jeez Louise. It, it actually
1: started off as a 2332 with a flange crank in it. And the flange crank uh, broke on the dyno. And so I went back over to Joel Horvath at RevMaster where I got the crank. And I said, when well, I'm, I'm putting 160 horsepower through this and it broke a flange crank, he goes, well, I'll give you another one. But all I got is 88s. I said okay. I'll take it.
0: So so now, now, now <laughs> I, I got to meet Joe. I got to spend a little bit of time with Joe Horvath in Europe. Oh, okay. it was a trip that he went up there with Chris. Okay, we talked. We, we talked about Chris a little bit, mm-hmm. but he went up there with Chris, and then I joined him up in Europe. And yeah. and it's interesting because. Uh, Joe Horvath is he was involved in Impy back in the day earlier, yes. and you, but you never read about him. Yeah. You know like you, you never read about him and then he went on to start Revmaster. Correct. Revmaster's his company and so yes. he he primarily focuses on aircraft. Correct. VW engines and he's huh? just a, he's just the nicest guy, just a just a good <laughs> uh, just a good guy if there ever was one. And uh so you were getting flange, flange cranks from him. He, yeah. he's making his own cranks.
1: Yeah. Through another association of mine, uh, Don Ricard from Artie spring. He introduced me to Joe, uh, and Artie spring was doing valve train stuff for the aircraft motors. And, uh, Don that owned Artie spring, Um uh, had a VW. And he, I met him through a guy named Al Baker who used to race dirt bikes. And I was one of the machine shops I worked at in the high desert. So anyway, it was kind of a small circle, uh, in those days. And, uh, Joe, uh, started asking me more and more cause I had a dyno and he had a dyno and, uh, he was looking at, uh, trying different things for the aircraft engines. And, uh, he asked me what I was doing with the cadrons and he was impressed with what I was doing. And, uh, Started asking about lobe centers, and we worked together for quite a few years on trying to develop uh, better packages for the aircraft. And uh, so he gave me an eighty-eight crank at uh, cost.
0: <laughs> so are they are they running those? They're not running CAD runs on aircraft, are they?
1: No, but he was interested more about the power bands that were coming out of the motors I was doing, and sure. uh, I was messing around a lot with closer lobe centers in those days uh not a lot of life not a lot of duration because i didn't have the money for big rockers and stuff so like i said a lot of this was all born out of uh you know wanting to go fast on the cheap
0: yeah and uh which is kind of the vw that's a mantra for volkswagen yeah Yeah. i mean a lot of us get into the i know me personally i got into the vw scene because my parents didn't have any money and, and i and i bought a volkswagen for two hundred dollars like a sure. slammed yeah. i mean like i wouldn't put my dog in that <laughs> car today yeah. but it, but it's one of those things where it's like i you know it was primered as a piece of crap but from 50 feet that thing was like a slam bug on yeah. smoothies with porsche nipple it was cool yeah it was like i was 200 bucks and i was cool yeah yeah you know so and, and it's, it's how it starts for a lot of us but then we get this uh I don't know what it is. It's like the first time when you—it's a need for speed. Yeah, when when even when even if you got a forty horse, but you get to jump on somebody in the line, and you're like shh, shh, just kind of pulling a pulling ahead of them, and then right. you do a little bit of this or a little bit of that, and sure. you get this yeah. this passion to go fast, and it's just—I mean, it's what starts everybody on the slippery slope to performance, you know? Yeah, and then, yeah. and then and then everybody starts okay. Well, how do I have two hundred horsepower and make it reliable? Drive it every day, but. Well, so. that's,
1: that's very doable these days. Actually, it's, uh, the evolution of the hobbies is really come a long way, even in just the last 10 or 15 years. And that's one thing that uh, I try and emphasize on. I do a lot of research on pump gas, uh, and, uh, off-road racing motors There's a new class for pump gas,
0: uh, so
1: I, if I didn't have to make a living, I'd be on my dyno all day, every day,
0: just testing different just, stuff and just doing different stuff. Yeah. Let me ask this question: There's, there's a, so there's a gas company in town that's selling ethanol-free gasoline. How does that impact performance on airco? Because according to Gene Berg, remember we, talk, we had a conversation off sure, air. Yeah. They used to call me. There's a guy locally in town they refer to as Berg Boy, but before he was around my nickname around the shop at Desert Racing Performance was Berg Boy, because every time Jim Barbeau used to own a shop mm-hmm. here in Vegas called Desert Racing Performance uh-huh. and he was big off roader in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh every time he'd say something well, well, well yeah, Jim, but, but Berg says yeah. <laughs> he'd, like, he'd be like, Enough of you, Berg Boy. Yeah. You know, because yeah. he was out there in the desert doing stuff. But yeah, you know, Berg always, you know, the philosophy was Trying to maximize the horsepower and maintain the reliability. Absolutely, and that's and, key number one. And that was always that's always been an interesting struggle because when you get bit by the performance bug, you really kind of don't even look toward reliability more. You just want fast. But the key, I mean, for, I, first instinct is as far sure. as like an enthusiast and hobbyist, and sure. and the guy who's building engines and be like, well, you mm-hmm. know, I don't know if I can make that kind of performance. But with the technology like you're talking about over the past few years. What have been some of the biggest strides that you've seen that have made the biggest difference in, in regards to performance with street-driven Volkswagens?
1: Well, the old saying
0: is that uh, you get cheap, fast,
1: and reliable, and you get two out of three. Right. Uh, these days, uh, one thing that's really been impressive to me is that uh, so many of the manufacturers have finally decided, after being in business for how many umpteen years, that this industry is not going to go away quietly or quickly. Yeah. Uh, and the way to keep it perpetuated is to actually make quality parts that people can brag about. So over the years, uh, things have just, you know, and, and MP's new mantra, I'm really, really proud of those guys to, to actually step up and and come up with uh, quality control that's going to make sense and actually improve uh, the quality of everything going out. I mean, that's that's just job one, if you ask me, I mean, especially being a machinist, you know, you want to be able to get a part and put it on, and I'd have to remachine it. I mean, I got my own mill and my own lathe, and you know, for the longest
0: time, I had to, You had to be a machinist to build Volkswagens. Oh yeah, if you if you think about it, the the number one thing stopping people from building their own engines at home, somebody hands you a bunch of engine parts, like you can assemble it, but it's going to be reliable? Are they balanced? Are things going to fit right? And even the VW scene, we we've become a, like you being a VW. Uh, specialists working on building motors and transmissions, yeah. it's necessity that you had machining stuff Yes, even if you bought turnkey quote-unquote engine kits because they'd right. show up and this is wrong, that doesn't fit, there's a step right. on this or whatever the case is. So it's right. funny because I, I all the VW people, the shops that I would go to, they all had lathes and mills and I'm like, right. mm-hmm. all these guys because yep. they'd get substandard product from the aftermarket right. and they'd have to modify it to fit. For the most part, yeah. So... Yeah. Wh- we're talking about technology and some of the changes over the past few years. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest leaps that you've seen? I mean, what do you think's affected? I mean, we're talking about impies to be coming out with some stuff, but has it been head design or what type of things have you seen over the past 10 years that have really pushed the hobby forward from a performance standpoint where we're talking about trying to get 200 horsepower out of a street-driven car?
1: Well, definitely heads. Uh, Volkswagen's are a lot like two-strokes in the sense that the better flow, any engine, I mean, any internal combustion engine is going to benefit from maximizing flow uh but now we get stuff off the shelf one of the biggest problems uh in the old days if you want to call them that was that you know we'd have to take an, a uh casting and then weld it up well what happens when you weld on a heat treated casting it takes the heat treat out of it so now you end up with mush that's going to distort with heat and change uh cycling and all that stuff and it's going to fatigue easier and all that so having heads that are actually cast and even the CNC ported now, where they're cast with enough material to CNC port, we have no welding anymore. Now the heat treat is correct, the material is correct. They will see the cycles under normal circumstances without having these soft areas and spark plugs blowing sure. and all that stuff. So, the best thing about that is that being VW people, we want the best as inexpensively as possible. And CB has done a great job of that. I understand Ampi is doing much better at it. And they've got some other things in in the works. Um, But that's really been the biggest thing. As far as making power, the thing I've seen over the years is that not just me, but the Volkswagen industry is much more attuned to what really makes horsepower as far as, uh, you know, one thing different. I'll go this way. One thing different about the V the V eight industry versus the Volkswagen industry, or even Hondas or Mitsubishi's or whatever, is that they buy a ten to one piston. They get uh, a small chamber head. They get uh, X size valves from a two hundred two, and they basically bolt the stuff together and put a can that somebody recommends in it. Throw a four barrel on it, and it goes fast. It's fast enough for them. Right. Volkswagens, we have seven or eight different strokes to pick from. We have. Uh, four or five different bores to pick from we have cams from stock to oh my god yeah Uh, and then along with that you have to have matching components the right ratio rockers uh good chromoly push rods or aluminums i mean lifters lifters and all that yeah so to get all the right stuff or all the good stuff to work together has really been trial and error and uh not everybody has gotten the right uh metallurgy uh it's gotten better and that's like i said in the last 10 or 15 years that uh metallurgy is better understood there's uh uh, much better attention to detail and actual quality control a lot of stuff that we're getting and i mean scat when they started making cranks for v8s and stuff like that uh tom took all that technology and started building vw cranks and we've got bulletproof cranks coming out of scat yeah uh i'm not trying to really plug anybody here but um it's the quality of the product. I wouldn't care if it was Joe Schmo and back forty that was doing it. If it's the right metallurgy and it's the right heat treat, and it's ground to the right tolerances, and uh, I can count on it for a certain build, uh, that's what I'm going to get. You know, even if it's $50, 100 bucks, two hundred bucks more. Um, the thing I've seen, and this has been my own experience, uh, is a lot of, I try and take a lot of modern technology and adapt it to VWs. Right. Uh, a lot of that modern technology mostly is chamber design. Volkswagen chambers were designed back in the forties. They've never really changed. Not a lot of evolution. Not hardly any at all. Uh, CBs play with a little bit on their CNC chambers, but, uh, when I was working at Berg's, uh, I built a little 1680 that, uh, Clyde and Doug helped me with and, uh, Uh, it was a machine 88 barrel. Uh, I put a VZ 25 in it. Cadrons with 30 millimeter ventures. It was in my, my, I bought it. I had at the time. Uh, and we made over hundred horsepower, the 1680 with cadrons on it. Wow. And, uh, one thing I did is I cheated is that we Hemi cut the heads, but Gene said, you know, you can only go about seven, 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 eight on the Hemi cut and still, you know, keep from detonating it. Well, I had a little bit more faith in what, I saw because I knew that the 356 Porsche motors, I had actually done one before that, were 9 to 1 on the Super 90s, and they had a hemi chamber. So I set my motor up at 9 to 1. I think. That's and you figured really, the head
0: quality was on par as far as metallurgy and all that kind of stuff, so you figured, why yeah. not? Yeah, a lot of the same
1: quality that went into the Porsche parts was in the Volkswagen parts, so mm-hmm. a lot of the same foundries and stuff. Uh, so I went and stepped up to 9 to 1. I think that's one thing that really lit that motor on fire. Well, when I got my own shop going, uh, I did more and more experimenting with uh, the Hemi Cut. And I use a bird cutter, but I have changed the angle of it a little bit. But if you look at almost any modern motor, uh, even Honda has the pent roof design, which is uh, 45-degree canted valves in a, basically a dome shape. Uh, Chevrolet, the LS6, is actually what they call the cardiac chamber because it's shaped like a heart, but it's mm-hmm. basically a dome. Uh, of course, the Chrysler Hemi. There's all these hemi-shaped chambers that allow for higher compression ratios without pre-ignition or detonation. And That's all coming from having a quench area or a squish area in any part of the chamber where a flat meets a flat. Uh, what people don't think, what I don't think people realize is that as the RPM range changes, mm-hmm. you're going to have these little, uh, the airspeed coming in is going to change where those little squish areas are going to be. And if you've got fluid
0: in there, it's basically desalizing the fuel. Right, it's going to de- it's, it's gonna ignite it from compression.
1: It's going to ignite from compression instead of actually having the spark plug take off. Which then will give
0: you two flame fronts, which then causes detonation.
1: Why do they call it pre-ignition?
0: Right, because it's banging before the bang.
1: Exactly. And what people don't realize is that when you hear a ping in a motor, that's the rod, the crank, and the piston all lined up and the crank ringing is the noise that you hear. Really? Yes. Hmm. So, trying to keep from having... Pre-ignition or detonation uh, by having, and this is everybody knows, and it's very, very well known that the the cheapest horsepower you're ever going to make is compression ratio, and what that does basically is you squeeze the mixture, it actually uh, atomizes better. So when you squeeze that fluid, it breaks it into more particles, more particles, more and that's the part
0: you call the 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 what do you call it the, 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 call it the squ- squish. Well,
1: no, squish is where you have a flat meet a flat. So, so.
0: so squish is in the chamber design when you have the flat part of the head meets the flat part of the piston. Correct. Yes. And there's no place for that fuel to escape. Correct. And by hemi cutting the head, you're putting a spherical cutter inside the head chamber. Correct. So that it, it starts to arc out the flat spots. So that when right. that piston encloses on that. Correct. There's an escape. There's an escape route for the fuel, so you don't get. Well, the, the pressure, pressure
1: becomes yeah the the pressure becomes more homogenized because now you have one shape taking all the pressure right. versus a, a little spot over here where it's flat a little spot over there where it's flat and then the center chamber but if you look like i said it just anybody go online and look up chamber shapes on any modern vehicle there's a toyota yaris that runs 13 to 1 on 87 octane they do it with direct injection and knock sensors and all that i get it mm-hmm. we don't have that but in my experience, I've taken the Hemi Cut Chambers. Uh, Clyde's worked with me on doing detail work, and we have gone all the way. One of my street motors was 11.3 to 1 on 91 octane, still running 34 degrees and uh, 2442 that made uh, 235. I used to drive at the races, race it, and drive it home. No extra heat, no diesel, no ping, and uh, run 12, 10, 110 on street tires. Really? And, uh, it, uh it, it, i've done it more and more for customers uh, we do uh hemi cuts on every pump gas motor that leaves my shop and uh we used to go around nine to one nine and a half to one on you know, 19 1950s and stuff like that and they're just so much more responsive uh bigger cams aren't near as lazy because you have higher uh, pumping at lower rpm uh, there's just so many benefits and that's why Anybody that builds engines really understands what compression does.
0: So what? So so what heads? Are there heads on the market that come hemi cut right out of the gate? No, and that's one thing that's frustrating to me. It even took me a long time to convince Clyde that this was a good thing because yeah.
1: uh, it was his dad that actually brought this idea in, but he didn't understand what he really had. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, looking back on even the Chrysler Hemis. Uh, the Porsches that ran 9-to-1 uh, on the 356 motors, the Super 90. 911s are all Hemi. People don't realize that. The oh, yeah. Are, the,
0: the, you look at the head, they're all hemispherical They're all cut. hemispherical
1: cut. Yeah. Uh, so all that basic technology, for whatever reason, has
0: completely been ignored by the VW industry for years. That doesn't make any sense either. And, and you said Berg made a cutter for it, right? They made a Correct. Hemi cutter. Yeah. that would just, like he designed a cutter that would go right into your mill. yeah. And it would just, boom. Yep. It would just cut heads for you right there. 30 years ago. <laughs> that is so crazy and so what do you what, what do you think people like in the VW scene they, they stray I mean, why because I'm you're talking to a guy who like we had this conversation at lunch we sure full disclaimer we had lunch before this podcast um, but you know we talked about how I, I'm a type 4 guy like I love type 4 sure. stuff I, I'm a I'm a no replacement for displacement kind of guy. You know what I mean? And like. That's the way of the world. And my philosophy is always like 22, a uh, 2276 2.2 mm-hmm. 2 liter with 90% German parts. Right. Is a pretty good motor to, to, to be able to lug a heavy bus around because that's really what I put them in. Uh, sure. But uh, you know, like for my philosophy, like in Europe, because they have to go to, they have manufacturer standards to meet up to. They Correct. They use a lot of Type 4 mm-hmm. stuff because that's how they can get away with a 2.0. That's factory VW inside of Volkswagen for some of the TUV inspections. Okay. And – that's where some of the type four evolution started coming from europe because here mm-hmm. the the philosophy here is like type one rev it fast rev it high squeeze every ounce of power you can out of it to where the type four is like the rat mode, you know it's like the big torque monster yeah, it's it big is. block versus small it's block
1: exactly that's exactly what i was just
0: gonna say it's basically big block versus so as small we're going blocks. down this spiral right now cause, cause my, my gears are turning my gears <laughs> sure, are turning i'm sitting sure. here thinking like because mm-hmm. on, on my last gear that i built i had the um, I had a 2650, 2615 type four uh, that was all done up. It was it was naturally aspirated with fuel injection. But I would love to be able to take that motor and turbocharge it and have it still be pancake, sure. and have the thing. I mean, that's like to me. If you say like, "Hey Bill, what's your fantasy motor?" and it's completely yeah. unnecessary, and you could probably do an upright fan shroud and just get rid of running the but I just want it all to look factory, you know, what I mean? like if, yeah, if they I built it, it yeah. from factory, uh-huh. but you know, uh, I, I'd love to see something like that built. And, 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 and you built turbo kits for a while.
1: Yeah. We developed a, a turbo kit for a stock 1600. Uh, I, I haven't made any in a while, but they basically born from young guys coming into my shop. They wanted to be different. They didn't want to buy a Honda, they didn't want to buy a Mitsubishi or something or Nissan. And like the bugs, like the the, the vibe of uh, Volkswagen being an old car, no smog and all that. And the first thing out of their mouth was, well, how do I make it go faster? And well, being an old school guy, I say, okay, uh, 1915, 2332, big heads, big carbs, or run 12s. Right. They go, and the second thing out of their mouth was, what about a turbo? So after about six or seven of these kids coming in my shop, I've got this one kid named uh, Robert Anderson that, uh, pretty sharp kid. And uh, we worked together to build a turbo kit that kept the turbo out of the engine bay so that we didn't have the heat from the turbo and the exhaust going into the fan. Uh, and that's the only thing that was on the market. So we kind of borrowed a little bit of the idea of the CB hideaway turbo header, and we made our own and start off with, believe it or not, the first turbo we used was a takeoff from a uh, uh, WRX. Yeah. And uh, we used home Pass for our dyno at the time when we put the motor in the car. And we took a stock 1600. It took all about 12 miles to make one PSI. <laughs> so that really? the first header was an inch and a half in diameter. It was literally born out of an old tri-mill and a piece of fence post. <laughs> So the second header, we go. We gotta get more energy into the turbo housing. Mm-hmm. So we went down to gen three Now we made three psi. So do I run the right? We're on the right track. Then we learned more about AR and exhaust housings and compressor housings and all that stuff.
0: So we end up getting because with the turbo, there's there's a real science to it. I mean, vein, is, vein pitch, all that stuff. I there mean,
1: is there is. It's it's a uh, I'll call it black art because you have to hit the right combination. Uh, and it, quite honestly, I don't know if there's actually a mathematical formula or if there's actually some sort of ar charts you should go by i've heard of all about trims and things like that but in my experience uh it just depends on how much energy you've got coming out of the exhaust port and how you present it to the exhaust housing is how quick it's going to spool how well it's going to make boost uh, and uh, i am by no means an expert on turbos But what we did stumble across was we bought a T25 offline, uh, had the compressor, um, I'm sorry, had the uh, carbon seal changed, so it would live. And uh, we started playing with a single Cadron Mm draw-through, which the Cadron sets up in the engine bay, and we have all the sheet metal on the motor with two holes in the back tray, one for the outlet pipe and one for the Cadron.
0: So the back tray that goes behind the fan shroud, there's an inlet and outlet there. Well,
1: no, actually, the the, you're apr- talking about the apron press tray. tray, the press press plate. plate. yeah, the breastplate, okay. apron tray. So, like uh, where the factory
0: heater hoses come through. Correct. You're running in, in and out on
1: that. Correct, basically. Okay. Uh, we we just took a blank and cut our own holes, but uh, we end up with a single Cadron on a completely stock 1600 uh, at 10 psi, 16 degrees locked out. And anybody you want to use this formula, it works great. Uh, T25 is an um, off the internet. Turbo. Uh 60. I went, gosh, I'm forgetting it. it's about a couple years ago now. I think we'll say it's uh forty-six exhaust housing and a forty-two compressor housing. And at 10 PSI, we made 120 horsepower and 140 torque with absolutely wow. no modifications to the long block. How
0: much how much horsepower? 120 horsepower. 120 horse. Um I, I had a 1914, I did it, and that was at the Flywheel you dynoed it? Yeah, it's Flywheel, yeah. So I <clears throat> dynoed, I had a 1914, I did a dyno day back in 06, we are talking about, it, I did the Vegas dyno days. I did 06 and 07, and uh, and <clears throat> I had a 1914 with a Turbo City setup on it with a dual 44, flow Blow through? Draw through, draw through, Turbo City side draft. Oh, oh, okay. So gotcha. I had the Turbo City side draft, <clears throat> that motor uh-huh. dynoed it. 106 horse at the wheels, 106, 142. You probably,
1: tor- what, 4 PSI, 5 PSI, though? I
0: think I think it maxed out at 7. Yeah, see. It might have maxed out at 7.
1: Yeah, if you had gone to 10 PSI, you probably would have made 130 or so.
0: But uh, <clears> it, it, it's interesting how the, the, you know, what's funny is driving that 1914, when I had that car with the Turbo City side draft on a draw-through, I dynoed it at that, at that. Then I took that same motor. I had another bug a year later, new bug, 67. Uh-huh. And I bought that CB injection setup. Mm-hmm. When I bought the CB injection setup, the difference was 155 horse, 170 torque. Uh-huh. But it ran completely different. It had a completely different power band. It felt it was more like a linear top end power band versus like that Turbo City, when right. that boost came on, man, it felt like a monster. But at the end of the day, both cars, and, I, and it's not f- dead even because they had two different transmissions in them because there's sure. two different cars. Yeah. But I ran like within, you know, uh, two tenths on, with with each car with that much difference in horsepower because of the difference with the transmission and the tire size sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you want to talk about frustrated. I was pretty frustrated because I would expect a yeah. big difference with the dyno power. Sure. But there's so much that goes into that yeah being consistent using all the same formulas because with the turbo city setup i ran mm-hmm. a buddy of mine steve richardson at the track and he'll hear this on the podcast we ran at the track and we went to like a midnight mayhem yeah and i pulled through the lights <clears throat> the first time with running seven pounds yeah. and he's got a 23 uh a 2276 with 48s on there yeah we run through the through the lights he runs like a 1420 to my 1460 he beats me so it's like an hour to run again. So we're sitting there, and I'm, I'm antsy. Like I want to I see results. So I yeah, said, yeah. you know what? Forget this. I pull the vacuum line, and I shove an Allen wrench in it. And oh. I just said, I'm going full <laughs> boost, man. I'm going to grenade this thing because you're not going to beat me this time. Oh, no. And I did that and ran oh. full boost, which I think was like, it may have ran like 12 pounds yeah. on that thing where it yeah. f- forces the mechanical blow off valve to open. Sure. And uh, I ran, I went from a 14 Sixty, like a fourteen, ten. I beat my friend, which was my goal. Yeah, but beat him. But I thought, like, man, what a difference five pounds, oh, four yeah. or five pounds makes. Absolutely. You know what I Absolutely, mean yeah. in in, in b- boosting. And so that brings us back to fuel. Mm -hmm. like fuel makes the biggest difference. And then there's like methanol injection. I mean, there's so many different ways to kind of try to squeeze out some more power. And Mm -hmm. then the balance of like, okay, how convenient is it to have a methanol tank in the car and do the methanol injection? But there's so many ways. And so on on the turbo setup that you did, that was, that's the kit you're talking about that had the single CAD set up on it and all that yeah. stuff. Th- those were the kits that you had made. Do you have any more of yes. those, any of those kits left or are they all sold out?
1: No, we made 10 of them and they sold out and I, I haven't really, uh, made an effort to, uh, have them produced
0: again. But Now uh, a single CAD run on it, right? Yeah. Upright. Yeah. Running upright. Mm-hmm. So that would be, you know, like the Corvair back in the day around like a single, I forget the number on the carburetor, it's like a Y Rochester, Y32, something like that. It's a little tiny carburetor. But what was funny is the size of the carburetor limited how much boost the car could run because you could only push so much air air through that. It's called terminal velocity. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's interesting that, that you did that and there's so many things that have been tried before. What... So where did you evolve to after that? Like after you did the turbo kit, you're thinking like, hey, let me make an affordable turbo kit for people. And maybe these guys, so they could buy all the parts and pieces, get their own turbo. You made the header and all the pipes and pieces for them, or did you try to sell it complete as a kit?
1: No, I actually, I went the extra mile and made it absolutely bolt-on. I sold one to France. I sold one to a guy in Hawaii, a couple on the East Coast. Uh, And I wanted to make sure that my customers didn't have anything to complain about when they got their kit. We even supplied the throttle cable. Uh, from CB Performance, so it went directly to the sheathing and everything. that went directly to the carburetor, the bracketing. Uh, and uh, everybody was, my understanding, everybody was very happy with what they got because they literally did them in their driveways uh, and got the same performance that we did following our instructions. Uh, so the main reason that I got out of doing the kits is that I learned it. Yeah, I knew it. I knew what we could do with that. I want to move on. I want to explore other things. Uh, we did a couple other bigger turbo motors uh, since then. Um, you know, mostly just for running around. Uh, probably the best success story out of the turbo kit thing was that uh, I have my '77 Puma, and uh, one of the motors that got me excited about doing Volkswagens uh, back in the '70s was uh, my buddy that uh, lived up in Reno used to come down. And his name's Dave Check, and he used to build, uh, or he built what he called his D-Stroker. Uh, he thought high RPM was definitely the way to go, so he actually took a 64 40-horse crank and uh, sent it down to Berg's and had the BP service or bulletproofing done to it. Yeah. Uh, had a case, a uh, set of homemade square port heads with, I think they're 42 35-5s, uh, 48 IDAs, 37 vents. But he's
0: got to put this in a 40-horse case. No, no, no.
1: It, it drops right in it drops into so the, 1600 so the,
0: so the the configuration the dimensions cuz you're talking to engine novice here i'm, I'm like most people listening yeah. to podcast 40
1: horse crate yeah 40 horse and 1600 have the same bore spreads and so the, the bore spreads are the same right Wow, that's yeah, You can drop that. a you can drop a sixty nine into a forty horse case. You can drop a sixty four into a sixty. So
0: what you're case. telling me, if my gears are turning mm-hmm. correctly, if I find a forty horse SPG crank, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could. I mean, yeah, it's, it's possible. But I mean, it, you know, SPG
1: is boat anchor. The splash fed bearings don't work that great. So
0: so that's so that's the, the 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 way the SPG got its oiling was from splashing.
1: Right. It was actually uh, a Porsche design, from what I understand. Uh, it's like a dirt bike crank. You know, mm-hmm. they're all pinned and pushed together and uh trued up and uh the rod bearings are all splash fed uh and like the Porsches of those days the understanding was they had to idle at like 15 to 1700 to to get oil uh, just to make sure the rod bearings were being oiled uh guys used them in drag racing and they had good success in drag racing if they got pinned or welded because the shock from the clutch would twist the crank but one reason that they worked so well was because you have that mass,
0: the, the full circle. The
1: SBG cranks are just so heavy. You've got that all that energy built up at seven or eight thousand RPM, whatever it is. When you drop the hammer, and that something's got to give, and the sure. car will go. You know, as long as uh, you know you get gears and tires and everything else to go with it. Um, so that's one reason they did actually see a little bit of success in drag racing, but the problem there, like I said, was was the uh, clutch. Yeah,
0: they would twist the cracks. They weren't using the Washington shocker. What did Bird call it? <laughs> was an anti shocker actually? Yeah, <laughs> anti shocker, uh,
1: which was kind of neat. That's how Doug came up with those because, and just another problem in the Volkswagen industry I see is that everybody has a propensity to completely over clutch what they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, I think- you're
0: talking about when what you we say overclutching, You're talking about. Too much clutch pressure, or you talk about just well, revving it too high and dropping it?
1: No, there's two ways to overcome the horsepower coming out of an engine. One is either pressure or friction, mm-hmm. or both. Uh, stock clutch, stock disc, uh, you know, you get to a certain point and that's 180
0: millimeter, right? Stock is 180? Stock is 200 for 1600. 180, 180 is 40 horse. Oh, okay, that's what I'm getting. Okay. Uh,
1: but uh, so people think that they have these big motors, they got to contain them somehow. And so they end up with uh, a stage two and a three puck, or stage two and a four puck for 200 horsepower. Um, it's been my experience that I've run a stage two with a stock FNS disc all the way to a little bit over 200 horsepower. You don't chew up flywheels, you don't chew up pressure plates, and they hook just as good. And if they do get a little overheated, they come back.
0: Yeah, because you, you actually you, you actually want a little bit of slip. You don't want it to grab that absolutely. much. That absolutely, absolutely. That little bit of that little mm. bit of slip is what lets what gives you that longevity
1: exactly and there again this is more modern technology that we're borrowing from other motorsports uh pro stock uh motor uh, pro stock uh NHRA, top fuel funny car they don't have gearboxes they slip the clutch very very strategically to get down that quarter mile right uh and thank ron loomis for coming up with the ref six or whether he borrowed it from somebody i don't know but uh that's another godsend um and uh I race pro gas and I know I was uh, one of the guys on the cry babies at the time about the cost of it. But, uh, honestly I take everything back and it was worth every penny. Uh, but that kind of technology, uh, is what's keeping gearboxes together. There's guys running three, 400 horsepower turbo motors on type one gearboxes still because they have a good slipper clutch.
0: I want to ask you a question because you brought up gearbox and you, and you build gearboxes. I had, uh, huh? Scott Kelly on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and Scott's been running that fastback for eternity. You know, thirty years have been running that fastback, or twenty five years have been running the fastback. Okay, and in that fastback, so he got my gears turning because he says he put a bus box in there because it's just all more. It's more heavy duty, and I've got a square back that I've been going back and forth with whether I'm gonna put that twenty two seventy that I got in here in it, or if I'm gonna do a Subaru motor in it. But my thought, trader. (laughs) <laughs> well, see, that's <laughs> the hardest part because you know. Listen, I, I, I like big power. I that's it. why I do the Type 4s. I guess the it. thing that here's I got to give you this is my secret for like why I think it's okay to do a Subaru in the Type Three because you can hide the grill underneath the front bumper. No one can see it. Sure. A the radiator, yeah. B. No one ever looks at a Type Three motor.
1: No. For the most part, unless, you know you, know I mean? unless you're at a show and you got the deck over. yeah, you're yeah. not you're not yeah. doing
0: that. And and the thought to me is like I've always loved square backs because that was like the mini truck of Volkswagens. Yeah, you know I've had I mean? several myself. Yeah. And it, my thought is like, <clears throat> man, if I could put hundred and seventy horse inside the back of a square back, water cooled, like a bulletproof, reliable, sure. set sure. it and forget it type thing, sure. that would be ideal. But I started thinking about the bus box. Whichever direction I go, I go. What because also I like like the type four, the big type four, do a 2270 type four in that thing. And it's just a big torque well, monster because you're listening anybody who's got a squareback in the revenue at the 8,000 RPM. They got issues to begin with. You know what yeah, I mean? You're, yeah. you're, you started the wrong, <laughs> you're going down the wrong You road. got the wrong car to start with. You know what I mean? I,
1: I love the cool factor. I've had several squarebacks uh, yeah. myself. Uh, but the big problem with the type threes I see is that, you know, and I built many, you know, big motors for type threes. Is that you are very, very limited on the, the cooling capacity. Yeah. Uh, we can add a sump, we can put a, a 72 pass or 96 pass on it, stuff like that. But the biggest problem the type threes suffer is that they have a deck usually over the, the carburation. So you have twins Weber. So your
0: maximum velocity that you can get through your carburetors is is it's limited no matter what.
1: Oh no, not even I'm, I was going the completely <laughs> different direction in yeah. the sense that You've got a deck on top of your motor, and if you're sitting at a stoplight, what's your air going to breathe?
0: This is breathing hot. It's just breathing hot air off the exhaust.
1: Uh, And I have yet to see anybody really develop a nice airbox system that will pull fresh air into a Type 3 bay. So if you stopped, or even if you're driving down the highway, you're just percolating that hot air from the exhaust into the motor.
0: VW did. VW had that port that was in the front. They had the, that right. went to the dual air for the, cleaners. F- for the factory, kiss. Yes. Which is interesting. Right. No one ever utilized Nobody
1: it. Nobody ever uses it. I've yet to see anybody ever make something that would fit dual Webers to go to that port, which I would think would be heads and tails. It would absolutely change uh performance aspects of a type three yeah i
0: bet i no, and, and you're 100 right because if you're changing your air temperature by 5 10 15 degrees that's 20 big, 30 jeez yeah, you're gonna make a huge difference in Absolutely. performance and it's like consistent too it's, it's gonna run already cooler. there it's gonna run a lot cooler the, the port is mm-hmm. already there correct it's like why does no one all it, it's a good point you bring up because i tell you right now with my 2270 i told you about the air box that I, sure my 2600 the air box that i had on that motor. Yeah. And it had it, it, was, it was it was four ports coming up, and it was a big box with a, with a big square air mm-hmm. filter facing down. Sure. We know what the problem is with something like that in a compact thing in a Type 4 that's 22, seven, that's a 2615 Type 4. Guess what you get? What's that? A lot of blow-by. Oh. And all that blow-by because the breathers all went into that air box. Oh, I see. And what happened is all of a sudden I look at my motor after a real hard pass. I'm like, what's all this oil on top of my motor? Oh, yeah. Because the air filter is facing down. And then I sure. thought to myself – I spent all this money for this guy to build this air box. Why didn't he just port it into like the f- first, the factory cold air second, sure. A separate, it did have a separate breather, but when you're on a 2.6 liter, that internal
1: that's getting up there, pressure is going to start coming up uh, and you need to dissipate that too. And it's, that's uh, one of the trappings of a VW. I mean, you look at mostly V eights and even the import crowd and, they think we're nuts because we got breather boxes and hoses running off of our valve covers when they can make thousand, 2000 horsepower and they don't have anything but a stupid little push on element for their valve right. cover on one side. Uh, I think that's another problem that needs to be addressed is uh, ring seal. Uh, all the motors that come out of my shop, I use a lot of the AA cylinders and SEMAs and stuff like that, but that's one of the best things about having a dyno. I get to break in the rings about 70% on the dyno. So when my customers get their motors, all they got to do is drive it. They don't have to break the cam in. They know the timing and jetting is correct and all that. Well, what that does, I mean, I don't put a breather box on anything that doesn't rev over 6,000. I mean, even my off-road race motors do not get breather boxes because I think it's unnecessary, not because I don't think the trappings are Well, they're worth 1,600.
0: Is that what size they are? Oh, even bigger than that.
1: I did uh, one uh, class. It was a 13 motor for uh, an off-road car, and uh, it was a 2387. And, uh, but
0: you're saying it's RPM range. It's going to cause a at 55. Rise.
1: It was done at 5,500. That's another long story, but it was done at 5,500. Yeah. We didn't run a breather or anything but a hose off of the uh, filler stand. Hmm. So, and it didn't have any excessive blow-by. It wasn't puking oil everywhere. It wasn't leaking or trying to get out somewhere. That's the biggest problem. Uh, but yeah, ring seat is uh, is uh, you know something that I think needs to be addressed. Uh, Total Seal has uh, a little uh, dusty compound that they sell. Um, but uh,
0: so so one of the groundbreaking things we just discussed is if somebody out there in podcast land is going to develop a Weber intake air intake base that would go to the factory port location i'd love to see it. you would see improved i think you'd see improved idling and long long distance like city driving because you're not sitting there sucking in hot air and yeah temperatures
1: are much more manageable and much more consistent and that's anybody knows it does carburetors knows that the the air inlet temperature and that's why you have on injection you have air inlet temperature sensors
0: right so it'll actually change the mixture right it'll change the fuel mixture to, to, to cool the motor down
1: right It'll actually compensate for the hot air coming in wherever that may be. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean that's
0: to me for a type three guys. I think that'd be paramount. Uh, I uh, and you could really and really with a type three. Here, here's the advantage you could have, and, and honestly, the advantage you could have is, is if you design it correctly, you could have almost. I, I mean, minimal on top of the carburetors, almost something that just bolts over the Venturi's or, or the barrels themselves. Locate the filter somewhere toward the center of the engine somewhere between the co- the factory cold air intake and the the T pipe that goes to the two sure carburetors because you don't need to put the filters at the carburetors now you no. got you can maybe, you can use a different size filter i mean Absolutely. even if you went with a i'm sure you could calc the size of that 1 inch filter all the way around if you went with probably like a 6 by 6 filter that you pulled the air through you're probably getting the same i would assume you're getting probably the same The same airflow that you would with those little half-inch filters they put in the Type 3s.
1: Yeah, I would just say that, you know, try and mimic uh, what Volkswagen created. I mean, they were very smart about what they did. And you look at the PDSITs on the Type 3s, and they see this big, flat, wide air cleaner box, uh, and they breathe just fine. So if you're going to take in, say, 50% more air to make that much more horsepower, add 50% to the volume of that system and go ahead and mimic it. Uh, rectangular, ovate, whatever shape you want to use. Uh, and I think there's probably, you know, with the right manifolds, you probably got two, maybe three inches from the DCNF to the deck to create this box that would go to a T and then even have like a conical element that would go inside of uh, a tube and then have the tube reduced at the other end to go to your input inlet port. Mm-hmm. Something like that. I mean, that's just spitballing. But-
0: and, and so asking you, about carburetors and and you just mentioned the the word dcnf um what's your take on the dcnf carburetor i mean like it's just something you don't like because berg berg was in love with them and i don't a lot of people don't understand why but you know what was do you know the story behind why berg loved the dcnf so much
1: um i think i understand gene's philosophy in a sense that well it's the same reason they're putting third progression holes in idas uh the dcnfs have four progression ports Uh, IDFs have three. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what Gene's claim to fame for the DCNFs was that they were the smoothest.
0: Smoothest running carburetor from idle to full RPM range.
1: Yeah, that's what he used to say. And there again, you have to remember that we were still modifying them. Mm -hmm. So we did the Berg specials. And basically what that was was uh, adding the nuts to the mixture screws that were easier to adjust. And then we would actually pull out the uh, uh, little brass plugs for the uh, progression
0: ports Mm -hmm. and drill them out. There's a little, you know, so like you would drill, formula. you would drill and tap them.
1: No, no, no. They're just, uh, there are certain sizes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a bird thing. You can and, call and, them you'd and open ask it up. Yeah. Yeah. We'd open up those uh, four progression mm-hmm. holes. So it allow a little bit more fuel. Uh, and a lot of people need to understand too, that, uh, the, uh, mixture for the progression ports comes from the idle jet. Yeah. So, if you're running your idle mixtures too far out, more than two turns, you need to put in a large idle jet because that's also feeding your progression and your smoothest at cruise.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well,. I you know just because of cool factor I've been collecting DCNF so I probably have four sets of DCNF. oh they're great carbs just because I see them great. I see, that's my one Gene Berg stories I sold Gene Berg a set of DCNFs <laughs> at the Pomona swap meet yeah. and when I was when I was like eighteen or nineteen years old it was like the highlight of my uh, of my youth meeting this meeting this old old balding guy with a big fisherman hat and a flannel yeah. shirt and polyester pants on and I got to sell yeah. him some carburetors and it was like a big deal to me it is but uh, it is you know so I so I've always gone out there because I I think mm. from a set of Carburetor standpoint, you know, everybody goes with the 40s, 44s, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I don't know if tunability. There's a huge difference. Uh, the DC I I my brother. Get my brother started. My brother hates them, but I've always wanted to run them and, and figure out how to get them to run right because Berg was a big fan of them, but. And, and I don't know if there's an issue because of the lack of velocity stack on there, where they make kind of a tweet. They, I had that the bird motor we talked about at lunch that I have, and, yeah. it, and it makes mm-hmm. kind of this little tweet noise sure. when, when you're on the gas a little bit. And I don't know if that was the issue because of the, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 no velocity stacks on them, but um, the motor that I have that was that. All Berg motors, like six, yeah. six to one compression. Sure. And you're over here talking, I yeah. mean, that's an 1800, which it, according to your your buddy's motor, that was a 1680, that's ripping fast. I'm yeah. sitting there thinking, like, maybe I should take my Berg motor, mod it up, and put it inside the square back. So I keep going sure. all over, the- I keep going all sure. over the place, you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's like there's nothing better than the feeling of torque and grunt. Yeah. Because that's really what you feel. Correct. But it would also be super cool to have a motor that's you know, 95% original Gene Berg parts on oh, the yeah. inside of my square back. Absolutely. You know, so it's like, but it's only an 1800 CC. So my, my so. brother's like, let's knock the heads off that thing and crank the compression up. <laughs> you know, that's my brother. Because, well, you know, you're going to get a big power turnaround just by taking it from 6.6 six to 9 to 1. But is yeah. it going to overheat in a Type 3 configuration?
1: Not if it's jetted and timed right. That's the whole thing. And getting back to the small motors, uh, my buddy from Reno that had the 1702 we used to terrorize Orange County with, uh, I finally got an opportunity a few years ago to try and emulate his success. So I went to Jose at DPR and said, I want to build a 64. You know, here, here's a 40 horse crank. And he said, No. I go, Well, what do you want to do? I want to get back to a shorter stroke. He goes, Well, take a 69, D stroke it, go to Chevy Journal.
0: Uh, it'll be much stronger than the 40 horse. So you changed the stroke by going a smaller journal diameter? Yeah. So we didn't have to weld the crank. We just offset because it takes the couple millimeters out of the stroke takes
1: five millimeters out of the stroke well star crank was 69 and we back we, we got down to 65 without actually welding on the crank so it's 65 stroke I had some uh, 90 and a half thick walls that I got from a friend of mine see as uh, total seal rings and it came out uh, 65 by 90 and a half is 1672 and uh, and <laughs> The big heads that were on my 2442 on my other street car, I threw those on there with some IDAs. and.
0: So how'd you get those heads on there? Did you make spacers to go in between?
1: No, actually, like I said, the ninety point fives were thick wall. They were actually power sleeved for a nitrous motor.
0: Oh, really? So the tops are actually 94 OD. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how thick they are. Uh, so does it run cool with that thick of a wall? uh i don't have any
1: issues uh and that's one thing i was looking at too to see if we get thicker wall and it's just at the top like i said their power sleeves at the top and then rehomed they were done right uh so anyway we got 1672 and i put my big heads and 48s on it uh and it made 155 wow 1672 aspirated uh at one point i put my turbo kit on it
0: and now what's the philosophy behind D stroking? is that higher rpm
1: yeah uh if you look at Formula One or mm-hmm. even NASCAR these days or even Pro stock uh, NHRA, uh, basically the way to get the most energy down the track is to spin it up so mm-hmm. that you have this bundle of energy. You have you oh, uh, this
0: inertia. This- they
1: have this inertia built up because you have more moments of acceleration per revolution based on the pulses that coming off of each cylinder. And then you throw a gearbox at it that keeps it within its power range. Like Formula One, you're running from mostly, say, 10 or 11 grand to 18.5. They actually had to chip at 18.5 because Mercedes was the only company that could figure out how to get to 20. Uh, so just even like NHGRI Pro Stock, they run uh, a five-speed gearbox. And if you watch those guys, you know first gear doesn't go 40 feet. They run the motors all the way up. They do leave at a a more mundane, I believe, around seven or eight grand, but the motors go to ten five for a V eight. Wow! If you look at the configurations, I saw something interesting on the internet just recently. Was that uh, it was a little uh, expose on the difference between a top fuel motor and a pro stock motor? Well, pro stock motor has a big piston and a short crank. Top fuel's got a small piston and a big crank. Because they're putting pressure in there and they, you know, the same basic. They're both 500 c- uh, cubic inches. Uh, and the same thing applies to like Formula One. I think they're 1.4 liters now, but the stroke
0: is 1.4 liters the capacity of a Formula One motor. Yeah, turbocharged. 1,400 and cc's?
1: I believe so, yes. Really? Yeah. Well, wow.
0: there again, you put 40
1: psi, 50 psi boost, boost at it. Sure. And the, from what I understand, the pistons are about 100 millimeters.
0: Now they all And, and, and they only I, have a two inch stroke. I, and I'm not familiar mm-hmm. with that uh with Formula I don't watch a lot of Formula One racing and stuff like that. But uh-huh. are they all are they mandated like same engine configurations or their V engines, inline engines, is there different configurations, or is it is it It's basically mandated. It's a I believe it's a V six. Everybody has uh, a V six. Yeah. Short Everybody's stroke V six, short and, stroke, small piston.
1: Yeah, short stroke, uh
0: large piston, short stroke. All so the, they can
1: get larger valves in it
0: and they're going 14 you're saying they're 18, going 18500 rpm
1: 185 yeah. holy crap they
0: have to chip them at 185
1: because mercedes was the only with the new configuration uh mercedes was the only company that could get to 20 grand uh, but they're again higher in the rpm range uh makes that little piece of energy uh you know more useful sure so they throw a gearbox 7 8 speed at it and it keeps that
0: well, that's where you're seeing right, technology so. happen now. Like right. my new my mm-hmm. new Dodge truck has an eight speed automatic transmission Absolutely. because it, it, Absolutely. It, to improve fuel mileage, I'm I've got to keep it right in the sweet spot the whole right. time. Exactly, and by that, mm-hmm. it's it, it's able to produce. I'm always in mm-hmm. the power band. It feels right. more powerful, sure. and I'm, I'm I'm maximizing my fuel efficiency. Yeah. So there is validity to that, and 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 that's the other challenge that we face. The Volkswagen scene is like we have four speed gearboxes to deal with.
1: Well, that's where another piece of genius that Gene came up with. Uh, I think, it, you know, more and more of these should have 5-speeds. Uh, and there again, I'm not trying to sell parts for anybody. Uh, I've got 5-speed my Puma. Do you build
0: 5-speeds? Yeah. So if somebody calls more performance, they'll get, they can get a Berg 5-speed? As long
1: as I can get a kit. Okay. <laughs> so production at Berg is uh, sporadic at mm-hmm. best. Uh, but, yeah, I've done several 5-speeds for people. Uh, but that's one thing, and it's the same line. I mean, I know you're talking about diesel, but even the modern gas engines, uh, like even my FJ Cruiser, it's got a six-speed with a lock-up torque converter. Automatic. So it's an automatic, automatic six-speed, but with a lock-up torque converter, it's almost like a 12-speed. Yeah. But that's what it does. It does exactly what you said. It keeps the motor optimized in its its range where it's making the most torque and the lowest RPM in these particular cases to maximize fuel mileage. Um and it, it doesn't play so much to the performance side of it, but when you stomp on the gas on your diesel or stomp on the gas on your, uh, your I think the uh, the new Hellcats and stuff like that, yeah. they still have an eight-speed. Yeah. So it gets them in their optimum range, whatever RPM range that is. I don't know. So, but that's uh, that's all modern technology, and I think that more and more people, you know, should try and adapt to our world and and make these things live longer, go faster. And I mean, I've even experimented with small stem valves, beehive
0: springs. Well, and I think you know, I was talking about this with uh, with uh, Philip from Impy, and I was talking about him. You know, the VW scene has always never reached its full potential because even when somebody became the biggest, let's say, like Impy, the biggest parts supplier, sure, they never used their weight and volume and the, see, cause what's crazy is the size of our VW scene is worldwide. It's not like the right. Chevy guys that sure. are just stateside. I mean, right. this podcast that we're on right now is downloaded in 69 countries around the world. Nice. And, and, and and the advantage is because of VW's worldwide something becomes top level performance stuff in the VW scene here yeah. it goes everywhere yeah. and we've got so much more market to offer but then when we start looking at like magnetos and this and that it's like we everything has to be so boutique made because no one's going to mass produce it because no one no one sees a market because they're all looking forward and not saying hey well what's what's up with these 42 million bugs that were built you know yeah. what I mean, or, or, yeah, or this type of saying. stuff. And so yeah. that—that's when I when I had Philip on here from the MP podcast. That's what I said. That's what I said to Philip. I said, "Are you going to take advantage of your position as MP? Because like you see, he's starting to do the JC. Uh, um, right. Like, he bought out JC. P- well, no, no, mm-hmm. but the JE Piston. Oh yeah. Instead of mm-hmm. trying to go to China and have pistons made over there, why not eliminate the Chinese level pistons, partner with JE, and say, hey, look, I'm the guy that's going to buy." you know, 50,000 mm-hmm. sets of pistons a year. Why don't we get some U S made pistons, some good quality stuff and bring good quality stuff to the market. Because like on my type four that Ravi built for me back in 99, it's got right. Keith black pistons in it. You know right. what I mean? So it's like, right. It, it can be done, but if, if the VW scene goes at it from, and I think this is where MPs got a huge opportunity because they do, they've already got a distribution network in place. Yeah. They've already got a proven track record of sales for so many years. Sure. That why can't they go to Mallory and say, develop, this why can't they go here to you know clutch company and say develop this we're going to sell you know because we're buying sax clutches and all the stuff that's just off the shelf mostly stock stuff and unless yeah it's Mm. boutique Mm. made then we're you know and that's kind of the challenge that the it's the beauty and the and the downfall of the vw scene because that's the
1: beast it's the, the beauty and the beast is that you like any other business you have to almost guarantee a certain amount of sales per year per product to make it viable and make it actually worth your while for R&D. You you get an idea and you say that you're going to put out, uh, say, 10,000 units a year. So you amortize the tooling from that for so many products. And then after that, not free, but it comes down to cost. That's why sure. coffee makers get cheaper over years. That's why everything gets cheaper because the tooling paid for now. And as long as there aren't any major changes, uh, you know, the product becomes uh, nothing more than a material and some labor and then end result. The thing is, I don't think that the major corporations, and they'll probably argue with me on this one, uh, see the potential for getting Volkswagens to the modern era uh, as an air-cooled uh, entity. And uh, sustaining more and more of our market and their market with a good quality product. Uh, I think that uh, there's always that crapshoot that they're going to make a product and uh, they may not see, you know, well, here's one. Uh, And I won't go through all the details, but I developed a single Cadron because I had so many customers dealing with what I call the 34 pick three blues.
0: (laughs) The 34 pick nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: We do know how to cure that now. There again, it just took time and effort and some, some smart people to figure out how to make those things work, and, and they do work.
0: Well, because uh, the, the mentality in the VW is like, just throw it away and get dual carbs
1: that's that's part of it yeah. or
0: good get the get the 30 the 30 pick three that's the 30, adapter the 30 yeah. pick one 30, 30 pick, pick one adapter adapter yeah right, sure. <laughs> uh so that, that was, was p- when i when i went to the store right. that you're talking to the guy that did that like i sure. had a, a motor out of a 70 something i had the 34 pick three and i go yeah. there and i'm like hey man i got this issue with this carb you got a rebuild kit and right. the guy just slides over the adapter yeah and says here just get this carb right. and this adapter and, right. and, and 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 i think in our scene No one takes the time to – there's not a lot of those Gene Bergs around anymore that, like, take the time to try to figure out the core problem and solve it. Right. And, conversely, we actually have, unfortunately,
1: a lot of people that uh, think they've solved the problem uh, on one set of circumstances and create a glittering generality out of one set of circumstances. And they go on YouTube and tell everybody how to fix what they think is the problem. And half the time, they're screwing things up worse. Right. Uh, So – that's you know my one note of caution if anybody if you're going to try and develop something or or prove a technique it takes more than one you have no idea well what- yeah, it's
0: case studies it's like I, you got to fix it on you got to fix it on a guy in Nevada Colorado Arizona to make sure that at well, different altitudes and elevations it's working because it, what it, what may have fixed on this one car it may not right. have been the issue absolutely. Uh, What's what? Give me an example. What what have you seen? Where, you, without naming names, or whatever. What what have you seen? That's a misleading thing that you've seen on the internet that you thought, well, this doesn't make any sense. And it's A, B, and C. Why? And it's just disappointing because what? Here's the end result. The end result is we get an enthusiast that. Most of us are enthusiasts and we want to be hands on to some degree. Sure. So we get these cars, we want to work on them our, our, ourselves, and we start doing the stuff. And the first thing everybody does nowadays, this generation, they go right to YouTube. We'd have to go get a Climbers or sure. a Chilton or something sure. like that, or Bentley. Or a buddy go, that did it. Yeah, know. or a buddy or, or the right. idiot manual. We had to go right. do something right. and sit and read and do that kind of stuff.
1: Right. And yes, stuff have to remember the books were written by people. <laughs> and right. a lot of those people that wrote those books didn't necessarily do case studies. They sure. did ones or twos and that's it. Um, I'm, I'm probably gonna get some phone calls about this one. One I've constantly seen was that these people drill holes in the butterflies of carburetors. Uh, yeah. I know that Volkswagen did that at one point okay? as
0: a, as a TSB. Yeah, they did do that. VW did that as a TSB. Yeah, the, 30,
1: the 34 pick three. Actually, a lot of the models do have a hole in the butterfly. Uh, it's a bypass for high vacuum. Um, when you do it to a Weber, basically you're ruining the signal for the idle
0: circuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen. So you mean people do these on like four barrel Weber, saying, "Well, VW did it on a single Solex. It might. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, and we're just going to do it in the Webers too."
1: Well, and there again, it, it may have worked at one time on one motor for mm-hmm. whatever reason, and they didn't understand completely what was going on. And I don't know everything. I don't claim to know everything, but this has been my experience. So we take those butterflies out, put regular butterflies in, make sure that the idle bypass. Screws are closed all the way because those are made for a different reason completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually get the jetting proper for whatever signal that you've got. Uh, it, it's uh, that's it's just it's, one. It's not a thing. simple
0: fix where it's like, yeah, just drill these holes and your problem solved. It's like there's a lot of factors because most a, a, a lot of EW people like I got this motor from my buddy. They don't know what cams in it. They don't know no. what displacement no. it is. I mean, I don't know how many guys no. I've run into are like, oh, what size motor is that? And they've they got forty no fours on it. And they're Nine. like. My buddy told me it's an 18, like that's right. the go-to number. It's exactly.
1: 1835. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people come into my shop that just bought a buggy and has an 1835 in it with a stock carburetor And, on, and you know, open some, it up oh, or and, it's a 1600 yeah, it's a with 1600. dual carbs or whatever. Or even just a stock carburetor, but they claim it's an 1835. Uh, I'm, unfortunately, people lie. If you don't have paperwork, if you don't have anything to substantiate your claims, just, just don't do it. Don't say it. Uh, but the problem really is that uh, – even though we have, and that's like I was saying earlier about, you know, you go to a Chevy, you got uh, 10 to 1 pistons, you got a small chamber head, you get a dual plane manifold, you get a Holly 650, and you get hooker headers, and you make 450 horse. You've got your recipes. You've got, got your, your recipes, set recipes right. in the V8 world. Right. Uh, I have a lot of my own, uh, I'll call them recipes if you like, but at the same time, when I do get customers in where, okay, well, it's supposed to be an 1835, and it's got... Uh, single 44, and it's got a flat spot. You know, I, I see that all the time. Well, the aluminum intake manifolds, the the runners are basically just too large. There isn't a vacuum signal. And what plays into that is, okay, well, what compression ratio is it? How much cam is in it? You know, uh, are the head stock or not? So all that's going to create airspeed
0: and or vacuum signal. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Now, on an existing motor, can you find that out without taking the motor apart? Or do you have to pull it apart? I mean, can you put a vacuum meter on it and tell based on the vacuum, like where it is, what it should have, and what you need to do to choke it down, if you need to choke it down, or to get no? Because it? you
1: can have a big motor with a huge cam, and it's going to have the same vacuum signal. It's a small motor with a with a, a small cam. So, right. you know, the vacuum signal is going to tell you anything, and uh, it's without actually measuring the bore and measuring the stroke, you have no idea. That's where experience plays in. So. You get a guy with X motor and it's, it's got X condition. Well, okay. There's so many things, uh, and we can go on and on about different components. I think they need to be upgraded for our industry and, you know, ditch the blue coils and get something that's at least 40,000 volts or like the DIS nine at 65,000 volts. What
0: do you, what, what do you like for your, speaking of ignition, what do you, what do you like for your favorite ignition?
1: I run CompuFIRE DIS nines on everything I own. Mm-hmm. I set the plug gap at 46 to 50, uh, I buy used ones and they're never bad. I just bought one off the internet for hundred fifty bucks with an 09, and it's perfect. So the CompuFire
0: Fire is the one with no plug wires coming out. It's got the coil Pack on it. Is that it's got right? the coil pack,
1: correct. Yeah. The IS nine. Yeah. MP sells them. It's a great product. Uh like I said, I've got on my ProGas car, I've got on my bracket car, got on my Puma, uh, got on my other car. I, it just they're always good and you've got a modern electronic ignition.
0: You does it make you crazy to see people using the double nines with the the patronics in it?
1: No, uh, the 009 is a generic curve. Uh, and that's another thing, you know, curving distributors, uh, you know, you only need to see the proper ignition timing. It's the most important, put it that way, mm-hmm. to have proper ignition timing when the motor's under load.
0: When it's not under load, you can get away with a little bit. That's You how can I, rev tune it until the, till the cows come home and it sounds oh, it's sweet. It's not going to tell you anything. And you it's put some not, torque on it yeah. and it's a totally different world.
1: Absolutely. It's not going to tell you a thing. I mean, I can't tell you how many people come in, they asked me about their tune, their carburetor's junk. They wanted to get new carburetors. And I asked them, have they adjusted their valves? No. Uh, What's your timing at? I set it by ear. <laughs> and that drives me nuts. Uh, you set the timing, you adjust the carburetor. So uh, once you get all those parameters into uh, a, a usable sequence, mm-hmm. then you can actually make an assessment of, well, okay, it's too big of a cam, or uh, the flat spot's coming because low vacuum signal and a big manifold. Things like that. So you, you troubleshoot it. takes time and accurate information.
0: But you fix fixed a lot of those. The, 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 the single 44 Weber in the middle of the motor, and it's got a huge flat spot. And you've been able to like, through your experience and repetition, you're like, you look at it like, I'm going to try a couple key things. And I think I'm going to figure out what's wrong with this motor and well, get it to run way better.
1: There again, actually, by experience, uh, my cure is to go to the isolated runner mon- manifold. Uh, Bug Pack used to make them. They don't make them anymore. Oh, the uh, independent runners that go the in- to? Independent runner manifold. And I'll tell you the little story, okay? So I built a 1776 for this guy. This is probably 20 years ago. And he insisted on a single 44. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, we'll go ahead and do this. And I bought a kit, put it on, and I beat my head against the wall for probably three days to get rid of this flat spot. I drilled the jets out. I went back. I didn't have my dyno yet, but this is drivability. Dyno probably wouldn't even show this. I went up and down on the mains, went up and down the idles. I, I couldn't get this flat spot out of it. I drilled out the uh, accelerator pump nozzles to where they were practically puking fuel. And that was the closest it got. And a friend of mine who's an aerodynamicist, uh, he deals a lot with uh, intake systems and stuff. He came over and I just go, I, I, I'm lost. I don't know what to do with this thing. And he goes, what's, it, what's the problem? I told him, I go, it's just got this hair in the flat spot and this and that. And uh, he goes, take carburetor off. Okay, so I pulled the carburetor off. and He goes, there's your problem. He pointed right at the manifold. I go, what's wrong? He goes, runners are too big. You're losing your signal as you crack the throttle open. So you got a high vacuum. So it
0: goes instantly flat.
1: It goes, no, there's no vacuum signal, so it can't pull through the jets.
0: Right. So you're just flooding it with fuel, and there's no, there's you're no, you're just, you're throwing, there's no velocity there.
1: Right. You're just throwing <laughs> fuel at it to get it to transition. You're better off with out. your
0: buddy and two spray bottles on the deck lid. <laughs>
1: Pretty much, yeah. So I <laughs> yeah, actually, I actually did that. We took the aluminum manifold off. We put the isolated random manifold on it because mm-hmm. it was about a quarter inch, a little bit more than a quarter inch smaller
0: on the ID. So smaller diameter tubing. Smaller
1: tubing. diameter tubing on the ID. That's the important part. Mm-hmm. And bam. It worked perfect. It. I, I had to go back on all the jets. I had to put the mains back to uh, what was a you know. I had them out to one fifties, one sixties. I went back to one thirties, one thirty fives. Idle jets went back to normal, and it ran like a striped tape. And the guy I drove it for the last I saw. He was still driving it. So
0: and it's crazy because you know that's it's like vws there's like like you said there's so many stinking combinations right every day people come in every day of the year and you would see a different motor combination carburetor combination and uh, you know uh, that's the beauty but it's also the curse i mean so we get all these opportunities for
1: advancement and and to make actually trim the power band for our use that's what i love to do for my customers uh i got one Formula, if you want, that mm-hmm. just recently came up. And like I said, sometimes inspiration comes from the strangest places. But I had this old guy come in, had a Baja, and he goes, I want to be able to look at a hill and just punch the gas and climb it. So he I, wanted torque I on go, demand. He torque. I go, 2332. Uh, he goes, I can't afford a stroker. Okay. So we go 1915, the biggest we can go without blowing things out. Okay. I go, this, this, and this cam kit, about 400 bucks between cam, lifters, push rods, rockers, adjustment. He goes. I can afford everything but the cam kit. So you want me to build a 1915 stock with Cadrons with with a stock cam? He goes. Why not? Uh, I said because as soon as we get bigger, we immediately just put a cam in it. You know, a torquey cam. He goes. Well, why don't you just build it with a stock cam? I go. Stock valve train, stock everything. He goes. I can't afford the other four hundred dollars. I said. Tell you why. You a betting man? He goes. Yeah. I go. If I build this thing, put on the dyno. It doesn't run right. You'll pay me to take it apart and put the cam in it. He goes, I'll take that bet. Built it, put it on the dyno. It's a diesel. Really? He he could punch it and climb anything. It made 120 foot-pounds of torque at 2200 RPM. So he could literally. Are you
0: kidding me? No,
1: not kidding at all. And still rev to about fifty five hundred because we had Cadrons on it.
0: Sure, but it had the the low end punch like a stock and motor the low end punch like a stock
1: motor. It made one hundred twenty foot pounds of torque. It only made about eighty horse. So I told him I go drive it like a diesel, short shift it, whatever you want. Yeah, low end RPM. Right. And guess what? I've done probably a dozen of them since the bus guys I love them.
0: Yeah. Because they yeah. had
1: the same a basic RPM range that their bus was designed for, mm-hmm. but fifty percent more torque.
0: Yeah, you, all your torques in your bottom end. That's where exactly. you're going to feel it. You know? and they
1: uh, Hemi cut them. We run them at nine to one. They run super cool. I run them. Even I just delivered one with forty fours on it. So we got a little bit more power out of it. Made I think close to ninety, but it still had all the bottom end.
0: So so you've built you've mm-hmm. built a bunch of motors, and and I get emails on the podcast mm-hmm. all the time. People want to know uh, when I'm talking to engine builders and whatnot. to hear, like, what sure. what is what is if someone comes to you and says, "I want my best recipe for a motor. I want to get, you know, I want to, I want to get a hundred thousand miles out of it. I want really good. I want the most performance I can get and reliability." What's that engine combo, in your opinion? Well,
1: um, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. Uh, fuel efficiency comes from basic just efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best ex- example I've got is that I had this girl come in probably about 15 years ago. She had a '67 bug that was restored, and the restoration company put a POS uh, 1641 with a progressive Weber on it. It didn't last 5,000 miles and it burned up. So she had some money. Her dad passed away, and she goes, "I want. I live in the high desert, and I drive to Loma Linda every day, 55 miles one way. I want something that I can, you know, get up on the freeway with." And still have it last. I said, okay, first thing I'm going to do is tell you that you can't go over 65 miles an hour. And she says, well, why? And I said, well, this isn't my opinion. This is actually published articles about the airflow going across the top of a bug. A bug is basically an upside down wing.
0: An airplane wing, yeah. So
1: once you get past 65 miles an hour, a vortex starts being created at the deck lid that's pulling air away from the engine that's trying to be cooled. And in my experience, in my testing, for every five miles an hour over 65, we get 30 degrees of head temperature. So if you're running 10 miles an hour over 65 at 75 miles an hour, you're automatically adding uh 60 degrees of head temperature.
0: And that's with that's st- stock configuration.
1: Uh that was with any motor we did. Really? Yeah. Because once you start pulling that air away, it's supposed to be cooling the engine. All bets are so, off. So
0: so you're saying the rear, the the rear air intake vents that should be drawing air in. Correct. Are at, under vacuum at, at sixty-five. At Sixty five mile out, an hour, they become useless. They come
1: yeah. under a vacuum, yes. That's one reason that MP actually developed the scoops. The back scoop
0: the, that went over the top of the the
1: scoop that went over the top or the scoops that went on the sides behind the quarter windows to force air into the engine bay over a certain mile an hour. Yeah. Uh good stuff. Uh, so, so anyway, how do you, so
0: how do we combat that?
1: You don't. Now, in my opinion, you don't. So moral of this story is is I built her in 1915, dual forties. Uh, Put a little cam in it, Mm -hmm. uh, heads were O41s. I take that back, heads were stock valve. Um, Had a three and a half quart sump on it, a uh, filter, and a 72 plate with a fan. Uh, She was at my door every 3,000 miles for oil change, valve adjustment. Uh, After 55,000 miles, uh, she got remarried and uh, her new husband wanted her to have a car that had airbags. So for taking care of her for all those years, she sold me the bug relatively inexpensively. That customer won the car, but had 2275. So we popped the motor out, popped his in, he took the car. So I had 1915 sitting on the floor. I go, it's got 55,000 miles on it. You know, what do we normally expect out of 55,000 miles in a 1950? out, worn out, and- and worn out, blow by everything else. Uh, but she was religious about sticking with the trucks, going up and down Cone Pass. Okay, 60, 65. So. I had a friend come in, need some heads for project just like that were on there. I go, well, these are the right shape. We'll just have to pop them off and do a valve job. I go, they got 55,000 on them. We popped them off, and they looked like new. The barrels looked like new.
0: Really? I'm like,
1: no, can't be. So he's bought the heads from me, did a valve job, put them on his motor. No cracks, no nothing. Stock dual ports. These were not uh, 041s or... or uh, any other castings? No, cracks, were, between the no cracks between the valves. No cracks between the valves. It was hemi cut, mm-hmm. and I did 9
0: to 1 on it. Um, so that was a 9 to 1 compression motor. That was
1: a 9 to 1 compression motor. It made a little over 100 horsepower with heater boxes and a single quiet pack. Um, I got to a point where I might as well just take the rest of the thing apart because it's 55,000 miles. Pull it apart. I could have reused the bearings.
0: Really? It was
1: so... Clean. There was no scarring on the bearings at all. The rods, everything, there was no discoloration. The inside of the case looked like it was just born. Everything was absolutely, and this is all part of the Berg philosophy too, is that everything used but not abused will maintain. Mm -hmm. And that's really what proved to me that these things can easily go 100,000 miles. And I've done several stock 1600s for customers with over 100,000 miles on them. Uh, and they've all been, you know, running just as good at 100 as they did when they left. So it's still within our grasp, but we have to make sure that the cooling systems, uh, a lot of these guys are using uh, old doghouse coolers mm-hmm. to try and reuse them. You can't. It's a thing called coking. So if you're looking- You're talking about
0: the inside of the coolers? The unusable? inside of the cooler
1: is is coated with coking because at one point, I'm sure in its life, it got overheated. Right, so which- use brand new coolers. Uh, the doghouse, doghouse systems, uh, make sure your, your tin fits right. Most of that stuff is great off the shelf. Now Debbie's done a great job with that, uh, scat too, um, and having the engine base seal, you know, do all the stuff that Volkswagen did. That's what's so crazy.
0: What what about the deck lid standoffs? What's your thought on that?
1: Well, there's one problem with that. One, they only work great if you're on the highway Mm -hmm. because you'll get that scoop effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not saying I've never done any testing at anything over 65 with those on. You see
0: people with the bottom prop and the top prop, and yeah, that's 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 also configurations,
1: right? That's also uh, you know uh, another way to dispel the heat that may be in the engine bay. Uh,
0: The engine should not see that kind of heat, you know, because your 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 fan Mm. is your fan and those vents are designed to suck air in. Correct. Most people. That don't understand physics think that the that that those vents are designed to pull air out and it's the opposite they're designed no. to, for air intake and your fan right. should be sucking air in and so right.
1: one of the most dramatic experiences I had doing Volkswagens was I was working at the first VW shop at uh, Mister Trans and at the time I mean they're still low mileage beetles around, mm-hmm. you know, seventy-eight, seventy-nine. We had cars coming in with 60,000 miles. And I was actually uh had a customer come in and uh looking at their their engine and uh, closed the deck lid and we were talking and um I had my hand over the grills on the by the back window. And I felt my hair move. I looked down and the fan, because the engine bay was all completely sealed as factory it was actually pulling the hair around my fingers into that grill at idle. Really, That's how dramatic it is. You know, when all the systems are in place, when everything's done the way it was originally engineered, I mean, an air-cooled engine is only going to lose efficiency based on the amount of air that we're not giving it when we're uh, given the air to give it. Sure. So uh, I've always tried to maintain, you know, Keep your engine base seal. That's why we built the turbo system with the turbo outside. Mm-hmm. Keep all the that heat, stuff. Keep the heat keep out. Keep the heat. heat out of
0: it. So, you got to give me an answer to that question. What's my? What's your motor combo? What's your go-to motor combo for daily driver? You know, hundred horsepower. How hard is it to get a reliable hundred horsepower on the street every day? And what's your go-to engine combination for that? Engine carbs displacement.
1: Um. Well, I would say if the guys. Definitely got this figure of 100 horsepower in his mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Go 1915. I would probably use a Web 218, which is a high lift, short duration cam. It's good torque. Torque cam. Uh, I would use the Ponchitos, which are great heads. In fact, they would probably make over 100 horsepower with the Ponchitos. They're good castings. I've machined them. They work great. I would go hemi head, uh, 44s. Uh, the big thing is the exhaust, because if you can't get it out, you can't get it in. So if you have to live with heater boxes, get high-flow heater boxes. Uh, otherwise, uh, I would get an inch and five-eighths or like my step header. you know, uh, something that's modern technology.
0: Do you, do you like like the, the the A1 turbo, the, the A1 sidewinders? Sidewinders, do, are those work?
1: sidewinders are great.
0: Sidewinders uh, are great. Those are inch and five-eighths?
1: Inch and a half, four-inch. MP a- e- e makes an, a sidewinder side flow. they call it, to get away from name-dropping, but... Uh, they have a side flow that's inch and a half. Uh, one thing I've experienced too, is that Volkswagens don't really like back pressure. Um, yeah. I think that fallacies come from people putting too large cams in and, and not understanding compression ratios and RPM ranges and all that and jetting and whatnot, because so you got to remember for decades and decades, these things got built without dynos. Yeah. So people are throwing jets at them and you know, they get that big number on top. It was all guests, See the pants. guess. Sure. Sure. It was. Uh, and I think that's one reason that, that Gene excelled at what he did is he tested everything. Everything he
0: theorized, he tested. He wanted to have proof that it worked. Not Absolutely. Just a theory. And like, so
1: your customers, too, they're going to spend the good dollar. They want to make sure that they're dealing with something that's a proven theory, not just a guess. Sure. And that's true V8 world, whatever it is.
0: You know? Yeah. No. So, yeah, I
1: would say 1915 with uh, some Ponchitos and uh, uh, DIS9 ignition, I would put a... Three-and-a-half-quart sump of ground clearance allows, mm-hmm. uh, a filter, and a 72-plate cooler. We typically put them in my shop above the transmission. Uh, on, We actually use rabbit radiator mounts as stanchions to bolt it to the package tray mm-hmm. underneath. And uh, it just has to have some flow. It doesn't have to be in the airstream because it's got a fan and it's thermocyclically controlled. So.
0: So well, so, that, so that's the engine combo. And now the next question, somebody wants you to build a motor like that for them. If they contact More Performance, you can build them a motor like that? Absolutely, yeah. And what do they figure for a budget for something like that?
1: Well, one thing about our industry is that there are so many options. Sure. So it, I don't throw what's in- the,
0: What's the range to expect to pay? I mean, is it seven to 10000 Or are you going to be five yes. to 7000 Or where do you think you're going to be? Uh,
1: tip, like the last one I did uh, was around six dollars mm-hmm. uh, for 1915 with dual carbs. Uh, and there again, we go from you know HPMXs, which are now pretty good, mm-hmm. to rebuilt Webers or new Webers. So there's sure. a there's a price range difference
0: from three fifty to thousand. You know, uh, so that all depends on. So if a guy wants you build a guy wants you to build this motor with a set of caddies on it, are you going to build it with caddies on it. Sure, if he wants them, yeah. You'd have no. What? Why would you pick the forty fours over the Cadrons?
1: Well, mostly because the the Webers are much less susceptible to atmosphere conditions. Mm-hmm uh they're smoother because you have all four four cylinders idling all the time
0: it just sounds smoother it sounds
1: idling. smoother it's smoother it just, like i said cadrons are the most bang for your buck but webers are definitely better there is no going back
0: sure. i mean uh but if somebody decides like hey i want to do the the, the cadron sort of the 44s and you're my cadron guy they'll save a few bucks doing that going cads versus sure webers or it's going to be this it's going to be a push
1: No, I would definitely say if if it's only a budget worthy of Cadron's, then we'll deal with Cadron's on it, you know? But you
0: could make a, I mean, you could make a stout little motor for this, like something that somebody's going to get in every day and they have that reliable engine, no worries, bulletproof, run it all day long like this.
1: absolutely. Like I said, you know, Janice's motor is 55,000 miles and it would go all the way to 5,500 and I made sure I blew it out every time she brought it in for a tune-up and, uh, uh, like I said, the bearings were absolutely like new after fifty. What do you mean, blew it homes.
0: out? Like you blew out the oil system? Or no, actually, I would, I would rev it up
1: and take it down the street and get it oh, up, up to five and fifty five hundred you loosen to, up the carbon for her. Yeah, loosen up the carbon <laughs> for her. Yeah, I make do that sure. for the wife all the time. I'm like you got to floor this woman. Yeah, once in a while, once in a while, it's actually good for her because you do get exhaust buildup, especially with today's gas is so sooty. Yeah, uh and that's a whole, whole nother, uh institution that we have to talk to the the gas, uh, gasoline producers, but, uh, with 15%, uh, alcohol on the fuel, we really end up with uh, plugs don't color like they used to you know, right. dirt bikes or, you know, you pull a plug out, you used to get that nice toasty, but that light, reading and like rate, like, like race gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, today's, co- today's gas will burn black. You plug, pull a plug out. The ring will be black on the outside. Maybe a little color on the, the, uh, uh electrode uh stick your finger and this is the same scenario i tell all my customers stick your finger inside the exhaust of any modern car that's fuel injected it's a coal mine there will be nothing but soot coming out the tailpipe yeah. that's just the way the gas runs these days so we and have they're to do running same super thing. clean and they're running super clean yeah and we still have this soot coming out the tailpipe so
0: if i have a chance to go like the maverick here in town sells ethanol free gasoline is that better to buy ethanol free gasoline for the vw's
1: I honestly so we test it first. I I wouldn't make a judgment. I don't I know. On the I,
0: I don't know what the purpose for ethanol is. I think it might be for emissions or something like that. But I,
1: well, I believe it's partially for emissions and also that it. Uh, I believe that the base product is cheaper than that of the gasoline
0: product. It's more so money. It's no, more it's, money for the ethanol. It's more money for the ethanol free. I'm thinking maybe, ethanol free. That's what I'm saying. Is yeah. they
1: put fifteen percent ethanol in it because the buy bi- the base product for ethanol
0: is cheaper than what the other 15% of fuel. Oh, so we were saying they're watering it down basically. Yeah. Now, and I, and yeah. I thought the reason that they, this may just be my, my falling into the the trap of marketing, but I thought the purpose for the ethanol additive was for emission purposes. I but, honestly don't know. Yeah. I, don't I know. can't
1: make an accurate comment on that. Um, uh, I like I said as as far as I know it's nothing more than it's Yeah, I'm just a curious why I'm, I'm curious
0: why they would sell it. So maybe yeah. they're selling it for like your ATVs and UTVs and stuff like that. I don't know, I'm going to, have to look it up. Maverick is the one that's selling it here in Vegas and it's and it's uh, you know about 20 cents more a gallon, but I think it might it may be for your uh your UTVs and ATVs cuz these things you ride them, they little that you let them sit and then
1: The carburetors, I get more and more carburetor jobs because that 15% alcohol turns into.
0: It's like the worst thing ever.
1: It turns into basically a a, a calcifications type of deposit that I have to blast out of carburetors usually to get it clean. Uh, And it makes a mess of jets and everything else. So, yeah, that's definitely a downfall that we have to deal with. And if they do have ethanol free, I would probably buy it. Yeah. Just for that purpose. If the car does sit for any length of time, you're not going to get that same kind of buildup
0: well i tell you joel we've had you on for a while we're we're pushing uh two hours so uh a- anything you want to leave us with um like like what you want to uh people want to get a hold of you how do they get a hold of you uh,
1: my shop number is uh 760-947-6647 uh 96 through friday saturdays by appointment uh i love to talk shop with other builders um uh, Cam designs. I think uh, that's would probably be a whole other podcast just on cam designs. We'll probably have
0: you back for that.
1: That'd be great. I'd love to. Uh, like I said, I don't know everything, but I can tell you what I've experienced, and then you can make your own judgment after that.
0: Well, cool. Well, hey man, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and I'm I'm sure we're going to have you back. The next show you'll be at where people might be. You can be at all the drag days and stuff like that. People want. I will be at drag day. Yes. All right. So if you guys see him at drag day, tell me saw him on. The, you heard him on the Let's Talk Dub podcast, and you appreciate getting to know him a little bit on here because maybe sometimes he's a little bit. Uh, a little busy preoccupied over there trying to get prepped for his runs but uh make sure you tell joel what's up that for the, you heard him on the let's talk dubs podcast we appreciate you having you on here man and thank we'll you sure, appreciate it very yeah, much enjoy the puma absolutely and, uh, <laughs> and it will there will be a surprise coming that's it we'll follow that <laughs> and let's see if we can follow that build if you're going to do it on the somber on facebook or whatever but people can get you on facebook too though can't they yes yes right,
1: well, uh, perfect i'm still still a little bit in the middle of I'm not sure whether I'm going to go back to a streetcar or not, but uh, there might be a little surprise coming.
0: All right, well, fantastic. Well, well, uh, Joel, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate Thank you coming you. on this the is, podcast. Uh, it's been a real treat, and uh, we'll be we'll be for sure having you back. So, uh, thanks, Will. until next time, guys, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Well, hope you guys enjoyed that podcast. I enjoyed. Having the conversation with Joel, learned a lot about him and a lot of the stuff that he was doing was pretty cool. So, if you do enjoy this podcast, make sure you go click and subscribe. Also, go to our Facebook page, uh, like us on Facebook, and share us with your friends. You can also check us out on YouTube. We've got a lot of YouTube content that we're putting up there. Also, if there are any video, out, video editors out there in the podcast land that are listening, they're fans of the show, and may want to join and be part of the Let's Talk Dubs crew and help me with some video editing because I am a one-man operation. I just haven't had time to edit a bunch of video content that I have to correspond with the podcast. So anybody out there interested in helping out with Let's Talk Dubs, either way, I got a lot of cool things coming up, some diecast stuff, a couple interviews with some guys to do some conversions. So look forward to some upcoming podcasts. Got a lot of good content coming for you guys. Until next week, guys. Later.
1: A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have a problem.